fertility clinics in Alabama and the people who use them are in limbo after the state's highest court ruled frozen embryos should be considered unborn life and receive legal protections. This ruling coming in has just completely disrupted the, the entire world here in Alabama, especially for patients who are actively in treatment. It's Thursday, February 22nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the Justice Department has foiled four assassination plots on American soil in less than two years. Some of them involve U.S. allies. And Massachusetts' year-old network of community behavioral health centers is opening up access to mental health care around the state. I mean, I can ask for anything here. Anything such as? Being able to talk to somebody, being able to call somebody with my depression, just to be able to open up. We'll look at some of the barriers in the new system as well. It's 401 News Headlines are first. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Patients seeking in vitro fertilization services are facing fewer choices in Alabama as more providers pause treatments to examine the legal consequences of the state Supreme Court's ruling last week. They include the University of Alabama at Birmingham Health System, the state's largest. WBHM's Richard Banks reports many patients are trying to find out if they'll be allowed to access their embryos. Dr. Aubrey Coleman is a pediatrician and a mom who had stored seven embryos at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Still six of Coleman's embryos remain there, leaving her frustrated by the court's decision. It's really a slap in the face to me medically and as a mom to say that those embryos are the same as my child. Coleman, who recently moved from Alabama, says she's hoping to transfer the embryos, but can't do that until the legal implications are better understood. A statement from the hospital system on Wednesday said officials are evaluating if patients and physicians could face legal action for continuing IVF treatments. For NPR News, I'm Richard Banks in Birmingham, Alabama. President Biden has met with the widow and daughter of the late Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Tomorrow, Biden's scheduled to formally announce additional sanctions against Russia for the role that Washington alleges the Kremlin played in the death of the imprisoned anti-Putin activist. Earlier today, Navalny's mother said she was finally allowed to view her son's body. The circumstances surrounding Navalny's death in prison remain a mystery. Shocking and unsustainable. That's how a top U.N. official describes the situation now in Gaza. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports on the latest debate at the U.N. Security Council on the subject. The U.N. Special Coordinator for the Middle East, Tor Venislan, tells the Security Council he was just in Gaza to see firsthand what he calls the unfolding tragedy. I'm deeply concerned about a possible full-scale Israeli military operation in the densely populated Rafah area where some 1.4 million Palestinians are sheltering. U.S. Ambassador Robert Wood says the U.S. has been raising concerns with Israel about Rafah too. He says the best way to bring about an end to the conflict is for Hamas to release hostages, and those negotiations are continuing, though he says they're complicated. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. America may be about to land on the moon for the first time in more than half a century. The robotic mission was built by Houston-based company, and as NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports it's nearly ready to descend to the surface. This little probe is called Odysseus. It's about the size of a phone booth, and it's supposed to set down near the lunar south pole. Now, Mission Control has been watching it. It's been in orbit for about a day or so. They're making a few tweaks before they start that landing sequence, but we should see it begin to descend later today. Jeff Bromfield reporting. It's NPR. 
The weapons supervisor on the set of the movie Rust is on trial for involuntary manslaughter in New Mexico. In opening statements today, prosecutors accused armor Anna Gutierrez-Reed of being lax on safety protocols that they say led to the shooting death of cinematographer Helena Hutchins during rehearsal in 2021. The defense argues the armor is being scapegoated. AT&T says it has restored wireless service to all customers affected by cellular outage today. This morning, tens of thousands of people across the U.S. found they were unable to call or text. AT&T has apologized. The Guinness World of Records has stripped the one-time world's oldest dog of the title following a review prompted by allegations of a lack of proof that Bobby, a Portuguese Mastiff, was age 31 at the time the organization gave him the title a year ago. Alison Roberts reports from Lisbon on the fate of the now-deceased dog. The story of Bobby, a Rafeiro do Alentejo, saved from being drowned as a pup and who only ever ate human food, caught the imagination of dog lovers worldwide. But after experts raised concerns and journalists whose work normally has nothing to do with dogs did some delving, Guinness opened a review. Now it has concluded that there was a lack of evidence that Bobby, who died in October, was 31 when it handed him the crown. Though Bobby was microchipped in 2022 and logged in Portugal's database, no proof was required of age for dogs born before 2008. A vet statement to corroborate his age for Guinness cited the same chip data. Currently, the world's oldest dog page on the record's website is blank. For NPR News, I'm Alison Roberts in Lisbon. It's NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Boston City Councilors are expressing fear over the fate of two hospitals in the city owned by the financially troubled Steward Healthcare. WBUR's Simone Rios reports hospital officials declined an invitation to appear before the council this morning. Steward's hospitals include St. Elizabeth's in Brighton and Kearney Hospital in Dorchester. Counselors representing those neighborhoods said Steward's financial problems are causing anxiety among patients and hospital workers. Boston Labor Advisor Lou Mandarini told counselors there's a major lack of reliable information from Steward. Every couple of days there are new rumors of an acquisition or a new operator. Little to none of it is concrete. Stewart is under a state deadline to produce financial documents by the close of business tomorrow. Governor Maura Healy has said it's time to transition Stewart's Massachusetts hospitals to new operators. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. The state has a new group taking shape to look at long-term financing plans for roads, bridges, and transit. The group created by Governor Maura Healey will include business leaders and several state officials. There will also be at least one designated representative from low-income urban areas and another from low-income rural areas. Still, Reggie Ramos of the group Transportation for Massachusetts worries that won't do enough for the disability community or communities of color. Identifying funding sources and creating revenue that is equitable and not regressive can only truly happen in inclusive conversations that center the lived experiences of the most impacted by transportation policies. State transportation officials promise the group will engage people from underrepresented areas. The city of Lynn's Leisure Tower property on Farrar Street is in line to get $10 million from the federal government. The money is from the Department of Housing and Urban Development. It's part of a national award to make housing for people with low incomes safer, more efficient, and climate resilient. HUD officials say the program ensures those families are not left out of the climate change conversation. 
We might get a wintry mix before midnight tonight. Then there's a chance of rain overnight. Lows will be right around the freezing mark. Tomorrow looks rainy with temperatures in the mid-40s. Then the weekend looks nice, mostly sunny in the mid-30s on Saturday, sunny and around 40 degrees Sunday. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. IVF, in vitro fertilization, gives people who cannot naturally conceive and carry a pregnancy to term the chance to have children. So couples with infertility, with genetic issues, with difficulties no one can explain, same-sex couples, single folks who want babies, with the help of doctors and scientists, they create embryos that they hope will become family. Enter a first-of-its-kind ruling last week from Alabama's Supreme Court that frozen embryos are children. That has suddenly put doctors who provide IVF in Alabama on shaky legal ground and put hopeful parents in limbo. Well, we are going to hear now from Alabama. I am joined by Dr. Beth Malizia. She's an infertility specialist at Alabama Fertility in Birmingham. Welcome. Thank you. And we are also joined by Brittany Stewart, who is a patient at Alabama Fertility and a patient of Dr. Malizia's. Welcome to you, too. Thanks for having me. Um, Dr. Malizia, I'm going to let you start and give us a little bit of an overview. Uh, We are watching as some clinics in Alabama have paused IVF treatment in the wake of the Supreme Court ruling as they try to figure it out. Are you still offering IVF treatment as of right now? We have some patients that are in active treatment and on medications that it's not safe for them to stop their treatment at this point. So we are continuing with those patients. We have put on hold a frozen embryo transfer. So we have put those on hold. We hope that is a short-term hold for this week and next to let us get more and more counsel, let us get our feet under us. Um, We are hoping to have protocols and consents in place that would allow us to move forward. Brittany, let me bring you in. Um, You have a daughter born in 2019. Congratulations. Um, And this was by IVF in Alabama. Yeah, Dr. Malizia, I call her, you know, she's our our fertility godmother, if you will. So (laughs) she is directly responsible for my amazing daughter. Yeah. What's your daughter's name? Her name's Emerson. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So your situation, as I understand it, is from that round, you still have one embryo left, and it's there in Birmingham. Is that right? Correct. So because Dr. Malizia was conservative and careful and thoughtful, we retrieved nine eggs, seven of which were mature, five of which fertilized, and then three made it to a day five embryo. That first embryo that we transferred became my daughter. We had a second embryo that we transferred. It was a frozen transfer in 2022. At that point, I was living out of state, but what's best for the embryo is to leave it where it's at We didn't want to move it around the country, so I flew back to Alabama and did a frozen transfer, and unfortunately, that embryo did not 
stick. It did not become a pregnancy. So we still have one embryo left in the freezer in Birmingham. And where are you now in the process? What will you do? <laughs> that's a great question. <laughs> I think that's the, the million dollar question, right? It's hard to, to know what the consequences are going to be if we were to try to move the embryo or if we were to try to transfer that embryo in Alabama right now and it didn't become a pregnancy again, what does that mean? What does that look like? Does that mean we've murdered a child? Like that's that's just kind of almost, it's astonishing. <laughs> like I can't think of another yeah. word other than, you know, it, it, it's just surreal. Yeah, Brittany brings up a, a, a really important piece of this that I think is kind of at the heart of how disturbing this news was for those of us in this world. But patients go through an extreme amount of stress just to walk through our doors. And so I I really feel for those patients, I've had to make several really, really difficult phone calls in the last several days to have patients where we are holding or modifying their plan for what's safe. And those are really hard phone calls to make. Um, I have many physicians, here in my clinic, I know we're not sleeping all that well and um, trying to make these calls uh, with the concern that we have for patients. And I have received that call from Dr. Malizia, not, obviously not the same circumstance, but, you know, she mentions just kind of the stress and anxiety of it. And once your body, once you have those medications and you're ready to go, so much about infertility feels like hurry up and wait. And we feel incredibly lucky that it worked and that we have our daughter and that she is this I mean her embryo I must tell you was beautiful (laughs) (laughs) she was a beautiful little embryo and now she's she was a beautiful embryo you know but yeah I've got the first picture of her and she's probably a hundred cells right but she wasn't a person to me at that point so it's really hard to wrap your head around not only how this decision, how they arrived at this decision, but what happens now and what are the consequences for families that found themselves the same way we did going, well, wait a minute, this was supposed to be a lot easier. I mean, I hear from both of you, there's just so much confusion um, about what the situation is. I do want to note Alabama lawmakers are are apparently working to try to bring some clarity to it. My colleague spoke today with one Republican state senator, Tim Melson. He says he's going to introduce a bill that would protect IVF treatment um, by making clear that embryos are not viable unless they are implanted in a uterus. Would that clear things up, Dr. Malinsky? That really would. Um, so we we have been working sort of tirelessly over the last several days to get this message out. People have very, very strong opinions about the embryo specifically. But at the end of the day, we all want to see women be able to come, mothers, couples be able to have children, single women, any any anyone who desires to have a family. We want more families. We want more children within the state. This is where I have a hard time because it's, this isn't just about Alabama, right? This is a nationwide conversation where we've got to understand science. I think that if we could just get it, if we could kind of like take the temperature down a little bit and talk about this rationally, you know, where can this embryo grow and thrive, you know, and that's, that's what we want to happen. So to limit options for families that are trying to grow, it's just really kind of unthinkable, but here we are. 
Brittany Stewart is a patient at Alabama Fertility in Birmingham, and Dr. Beth Malizia is her doctor there. Thanks to you both very much for taking the time to talk. Thank you. Thank you so much. In business, the million-dollar question is how to get people to buy stuff, right? But in wildlife conservation, the challenge is how do we get people not to buy stuff? Juliana Kim and Darian Woods from NPR's The Indicator report on one tech startup's efforts to disrupt the market for illegal rhino horns. The top markets for real rhino horn are in China and Vietnam. Some buyers use the horns as sculpting material to make art. Others grind up the horn and consume it, believing that it can cure cancers or hangovers. Yeah, that's not true. Right. Either way, it's illegal to sell rhino horns internationally. So all of this is happening in the black market. And it's kind of a hot commodity. Matthew Marcus is the CEO of a biotech firm, Pembient, that was hoping to disrupt those markets with rhino horn made in a lab. We wanted our horn not to be its own separate market. We wanted our horn to invade the illicit market and collapse it. Matthew's company emerged in 2015, around the same time as other lab-grown products were taking off. People who are optimistic about lab-grown horns bring up a specific economic concept. When a prospective buyer is confused about the quality of a product, it can actually discourage them from buying it at all. That's exactly what I'm talking about in terms of creating confusion in the market for rhino horns using the synthetic horns. That's Fred Chen, an economics professor at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. And Fred says that the confusion caused by synthetic rhino horns could bring the value of the real horns down. Or maybe if I do decide to buy something because I'm not certain it's the real thing, maybe I don't want to pay as much. And that sounds to me a lot like what happened with another commodity that scientists figured out how to grow in the lab. Diamonds. I mean, look at De Beers, one of the biggest diamond distributors. Last year, the company cut the prices of some of their stones by nearly half, at least in part because of the growing popularity for lab-grown diamonds. And that was Matthew's pitch as well. Initially, he made some headway. He had funding, some lab space, and even some prototypes. Then we started also to have a certain legal challenges too to to what we're doing and people saying maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Many conservationists were saying that lab-grown horns will only signal to people that it's okay to buy horns. And there's precedent for this when it comes to how the legal trade has affected poaching. In 2008, China and Japan were allowed to buy elephant ivory from Africa in this one-off sale. And a study by researchers at Princeton and Berkeley suggests that there was a 66% increase in illegal ivory poaching. Some studies on rhino horn trade reached this conclusion too. One researcher from the University of Iceland interviewed rhino horn buyers and found some who spent more than $40,000 for them. In 2018, Matthew's company was probed by Washington State, where his company was based. Although those inquiries didn't result in any charges or fines, Matthew said the ordeal drove away potential investors. But he hasn't given up on his idea. I don't think that these should never be done or nor that it will never be done. I think at some point in time, reason will prevail and these will come into fruition. It's been years now, and we're not any closer to knowing how copycat horns would do in the market or how they would impact rhinos. Considering all the regulation and pushback around the idea, There's a chance we may never know. Darian Woods. Juliana Kim, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday. With AI at the core of its platform, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. 
Workday, the finance and HR platform for a changing world. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up next, we'll go behind the scenes at some of the new community behavioral health centers that opened across Massachusetts last year to see how they're helping increase access to mental health care. WBUR supporters include the ICA with Of Wales, an immersive extended reality video inspired by Moby Dick. On view now, icaboston.org and Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. On Wall Street, it was an up day as the Dow picked up 1.2 percent. The S&P hit a new record after jumping just over 2 percent, and Nasdaq gained 3 percent. In local business news, the Watertown coffee shop Uncommon Grounds is being sued for damages by a New York State coffeehouse chain with the same name. The owners of New York Uncommon Grounds say the company demanded a name change four years ago from the Massachusetts shop. The New York one has been around since 1992, the Watertown version since 1998. The forecast is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy, helping Massachusetts residents understand their options when faced with aging or inefficient heating systems. Learn how to heat smart at GoEndlessEnergy.com and Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash. Cleaning cars since 1966 with 22 New England locations. Learn more about Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited at scrubadub.com. There's a chance of rain tonight, and it might start with a bit of snow and freezing rain mixed in. It'll get down to the low 30s overnight. Then we have a wet Friday in store. Looks like rain most of the day. Highs will reach the mid-40s. Saturday, skies will clear out for the most part. We'll have sunshine and temperatures in the mid-30s. More sun for Sunday with highs around 40. Then it should be partly sunny Monday as temperatures get up to about 50 degrees. It's 42 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, where viewers can stream new seasons of British detective series, including Vera, Father Brown, Death in Paradise, and more. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From Workday, with AI at the core of its platform, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR platform for a changing world. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. It's been just over a year since a network of community behavioral health centers opened in Massachusetts. The 26 facilities are part of a state initiative to give people fast, easy access to mental health care in every region of the state. Those who run the centers say, despite some barriers, that is happening, including when people are in their most vulnerable moments. Good evening, Mobile Crisis Maddie speaking. How can I help you? It's around 7 o'clock on a Wednesday night, and this call center at a community behavioral health center in East Boston is gearing up to be open all night. Mental health clinicians from the center's mobile crisis team answer calls. Noxon Yuga is one of the clinicians on duty. He never knows what he'll hear from callers. We have had people who are having a panic attack. We have had people who are having their first uh, psychosis break, and they are frightened, you know, hallucinating and seeing things that they never saw before. 
The call takers then dispatch other clinicians to meet with those people and evaluate them. That can happen at home or at school, even at a subway station or coffee shop, usually within an hour of their call. These crisis interventions are one of several levels of care Massachusetts Community Behavioral Health Centers, or CBHCs, are required to offer. They also have to provide urgent care for mental health needs that aren't quite a crisis and routine ongoing care. I walked in here and I asked for services and I got in immediately. Rebecca Higgins has been a client at the East Boston Center for nine months. Before she came here, she says she struggled with addiction for 20 years. She also has depression. In May of last year, she decided her life was going to change. I saw somebody at the desk. I said I needed help with substance abuse. They guided me. They gave me a navigation person, which um, gave me an appointment for therapy. She entered an intensive outpatient program at the CBHC several days a week. That included group therapy and visits with a recovery coach. Kate Moore directs crisis programs for North Suffolk Community Services, which runs the East Boston Center. In a day and age where we like everything on Amazon or one click, right, now we have the one click here. Your psychiatry, your therapy, your substance use treatment, whatever you need, we can do it in one place. And the care is completely covered by most versions of the state's Medicaid program, MassHealth. North Suffolk has offered mental health care in East Boston for more than 60 years, but it had to bring all of its outpatient services under one roof and expand its hours in order to become a community behavioral health center. Samantha Green Atchley is a clinical social worker who directs the East Boston Center. She compiled data that showed demand exploded after it became a CBHC, particularly in one age group. The increase in child intakes has been pretty insane. Wow, 450% from April to April. Yes. Green actually says that's partly because the pandemic led to more mental health challenges for kids, and there was pent-up demand. Other clinicians had such long wait lists, they referred lots of people to the centers once they opened. CBHCs had a hard time staffing up to meet the demand. They're doing better now overall. But Green actually says in East Boston, they can't hire enough staff because they've run out of space. They're concerned about that affecting the care they offer to people. We do very well in terms of getting people in, but in terms of meeting everybody's needs about how often they want to be seen for follow-up care, where they want to be seen for follow-up care, do they want to be on telehealth, do they want to be in person, all of that is challenging. As more people got help at centers like this one last year, another important metric dropped. There was a 32% decrease in people boarding in hospital emergency departments waiting for inpatient psychiatric beds, according to state health officials. One of the state's goals when it spearheaded the CBHCs was to reduce ER visits for mental health care. Riverside Community Care's CBHC in Milford is part of that effort. Sunlight streams in huge windows of the newly renovated building as the center's director, Julie Greiner-Ferris, brings us in. So let's just walk a little bit this way. There are clusters of lush plants. Local photographs and paintings by kids who use the center decorate the walls. So we really wanted to make this a space that doesn't feel blocked off or dreary. All day, people call and walk into the Milford Center looking for help. So I'm very glad that you were connected to us. I'm very sorry about the experience that you guys had. By day's end, about 170 people have been seen for various kinds of sessions, treatments, and interventions. Again, Julie Greiner-Ferris. My hope is that this place is somewhere that people know that they can come when they need some kind of support. 
feel responded to when they do, and feel respected. But there's one problem. Some people can't access all of the support available because their insurance doesn't cover all of it. Unlike MassHealth, many private insurers do not cover the full range of care at CBHCs. This can include assistance from peer support specialists, wellness assessments with nurses, and help with housing and food needs. Kim Fisher is a vice president at Riverside Community Care. She says the organization is hearing from privately insured people who are upset to find out they're not covered for everything. It feels very uncomfortable for providers. It's almost as if we're denying care to a segment of the population, and we feel really uneasy would be, I think, the least word I could use in that particular circumstance. It feels not right and not even ethical to us. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, the largest insurer in the state, tells us it's exploring additional coverage for CBHC services along the lines of what MassHealth provides. Rebecca Higgins is on MassHealth and says she doesn't know what she'd do without the support she's gotten at the center in East Boston. I mean, I can ask for anything here. Anything such as? Being able to talk to somebody, being able to call somebody with my depression, just to be able to open up. She just finished her intensive program this month and says she's now thinking about a different kind of future than the one she thought she would have. State health leaders have set up a helpline to connect people with mental health services, including the community behavioral health centers. You can call or text that number, 833-773-2445. Again, that's 833-773-2445. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, offering innovative plans, comprehensive coverage, and a broad network of doctors, all connected to one of the world's leading health care systems. Mass General Brigham Health Plan, with you every day. For more information, call your broker or visit MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. Since I've set up the legacy gift, I feel proud every time I listen to WBUR, because now I feel like I'm a part of it. Kathy Musty is ensuring a strong future for WBUR with her planned gift. It's so valuable, and I really want that money to do something good. I don't think of it as a gift to WBUR. I think of it as a gift to the entire Boston community. Learn more about planned giving at WBUR.org legacy. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The family of a man who died after being brutally beaten by police in Memphis are speaking out as lawmakers in Tennessee consider a bill that would undo police reform passed in the wake of Tyree Nichols' death. From member station WPLN, Mariana Bacayao reports. After police fatally beat Tyree Nichols at a traffic stop last year, the city of Memphis passed several ordinances changing how police interact with drivers, making it so unmarked cars cannot be used for traffic stops and stopping officers from pulling over a driver for a minor violation, like the one that led to Nichols' death. But Tennessee lawmakers could overrule those local ordinances under a new bill making its way through the state house. The proposal would make it so local governments can't pass anything that would interfere with stopping crime. In a statement, the Nichols family calls the bill a devastating step backwards. For NPR News in Nashville, I'm Mariana Baca-Yao. 
In New Mexico, opening statements today underway in the involuntary manslaughter trial of Hannah Gutierrez-Reed. She was the armorer on the set of the film Rust that ended in the shooting death of cinematographer Helena Hutchins in 2021. Gutierrez-Reed's attorney, Jason Bowles, says they're seeking to prove that she was not at fault and the blame lies with production officials who failed to create a safe set. Just because there was a tragedy does not mean that a crime was committed. It does not mean that Hannah Gutierrez-Reed caused the crimes they have charged her with. Attorney Bowles places blame on actor Alec Baldwin for not following gun safety rules. But New Mexico's prosecutor says Gutierrez-Reed's failures allowed six live bullets to make their way onto the set, and she did not make vital safety checks that would have caught the problem. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. State education officials say they will fund a safety audit in Brockton Public Schools. Earlier this week, four school committee members called on the mayor to ask the state to call up the National Guard to improve security at Brockton High School. They claim students are getting in fights, using drugs, and wandering the halls, and that's leading to a jump in teacher absences. The state says a similar safety audit was done previously for Boston Public Schools. Congresswoman Lori Trahan says the court ruling in Alabama declaring frozen embryos children was a gut punch for her. That ruling cast doubt on the future of in vitro fertilization in that state. Trahan and her husband used IVF to conceive their two daughters. She says a family about to turn to the procedure, then having it ripped away, is a pain she cannot imagine. I want to make sure that other women struggling with their own fertility challenges have the same chances that I did. So to wake up and realize that the prospect of having a family for so many women in Alabama has been ripped away and that that could actually become contagious across Republican-controlled states across our country is just shocking. Trahan says there's legislation before Congress to protect IVF federally, but she doesn't believe the Republican-controlled House will allow it to be brought up. There's a new cannabis business group in the state. The Massachusetts Cannabis Coalition launched this week to push for reforms in licensing requirements, consumption limits, and other regulations. WBUR's Zaninjor and Wameka reports. There have been more than $5.5 billion in sales since recreational marijuana businesses opened in Massachusetts. But some in the industry say that number doesn't tell the full story. Ryan Dominguez is executive director of the Massachusetts Cannabis Coalition. He says the costs and fees required by regulations place a financial burden on small businesses. There's a lot of cannabis businesses and members that I've spoken to that are struggling to even keep their doors open, regardless of whether they plan to scale up their businesses or not. Dominguez says the new coalition hopes to change regulations to make it easier for marijuana businesses to operate. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. And the time is 434. Taking a look. Taking a look at the forecast, there might be some rain overnight, maybe a little freezing rain and snow mixed in at the start of it. Then tomorrow looks all rainy. It'll get to the mid-40s. The sun should return Saturday with some puffy clouds and highs in the mid-30s. Then Sunday's looking a little warmer, around 40, with sunshine again. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Cigna Healthcare, a health benefits provider that advocates for better health through every stage of life. Learn more at Cigna.com. From Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate, 
at Progressive.com, not available in California or from all agents. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. It's time now for our regular Science News Roundup with our friends at NPR's Shortwave Podcast. Regina Barber and Rachel Carlson. Hey to both of you. Hi, Elsa. Hey. So how this usually works is you guys bring us three science stories that caught your attention this week. What are they? The love songs of an endangered species of gibbon. Ooh. How women might not have to work out as long as men to get the same benefits. <laughs> and a powerful tool to lower your blood pressure, Tai Chi. Huh. Okay, Rachel, I love, love, love these ideas. Let's start with the apes. Okay, so this story starts in Myanmar. Picture patches of green forest full of fruits like figs. Mm. And then, Elsa, close your eyes. Okay. Imagine you're being serenaded by gibbons with bushy white eyebrows and brown or black beards. <laughs> Hot. Open your heart and your ears for some love songs. Mm. swooning. Why doesn't a man ever sing to me like this? I know. I'm kind of <laughs> jealous, which I feel like is sad, but, you know, we're getting over it. The singers of these very passionate duets just helped researchers figure out that Myanmar has the largest population of this endangered gibbon species on Earth. They're called Skywalker gibbons, and until recently, scientists thought there were fewer than 200 of them all in southwestern China. And scientists suspected they might extend to Myanmar, but they didn't know for sure because there hadn't been a lot of research on gibbons in general. I mean, just too much singing, not enough research. Yeah, kind of. I talked to a gibbon researcher who wasn't involved in the study, Jackie Prime from the nonprofit Prime Earth, and she says gibbons are the fastest tree-dwelling mammals in the world, so they can be kind of hard to track. I like to refer to them as like stealth ninjas when they're moving through the forest. <laughs> so they're tiny, they're very quiet. Quiet except for these super lovey duets, which all gibbons sing. So, wait, how did researchers go from these super lovey duets to discovering this new population of Skywalker gibbons? Yeah, good question. So the team set up sound monitoring systems in a bunch of different forested areas in Myanmar to eavesdrop, and they heard them singing. And the researchers collected DNA samples using, like, chewed-up plants and fruits to confirm the duets they heard were actually skywalkers and not some other closely related species. This is all detailed in a recent study in the International Journal of Primatology. And earlier you said these guys, they're endangered, right? Is that still the case if there's, what, more than scientists originally thought? Yeah, sadly, they are still endangered because skywalkers still face big threats like forest loss and hunting. But the senior author on the paper, Tiara Smiley-Evans, says now that they've developed relationships with local communities in Myanmar, she's hopeful that the research may encourage further collaboration and conservation efforts for all kinds of species in the country. Okay, super fascinating. Gina, for our next story, we have this scientific study that is telling me I do not have to work out as much as a man. 
I just yeah. joined a gym last week. No. Yeah, well, yes. I mean, you still should work out. <laughs> okay. Elsa. Right. But a new study in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology shows that, yes, women don't have to work out as much as men to get the same health benefits. <laughs> yeah. They, the only thing where women don't have to work as hard to get the same thing as a guy does. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what the researcher said. So they, they looked at specifically moderate to vigorous exercise, so like brisk walking or running and strength training. So if a man exercised for 300 minutes, it had the same benefits as a woman who only worked out for 140 minutes. Wow, so only about half the time? Yeah. No way! Okay, but what, it, what are the specific health benefits that we're talking about here? So mostly we don't die, or we don't <laughs> die as soon as people who didn't work out. Nice. So these scientists studied health data on more than 400,000 U.S. adults, more than half of whom are female, who are part of this huge database called the National Health Interview Survey. It is over two decades of information on things like how much a person exercises. And then they cross-referenced this data with um, national death index records to see if these individuals were still alive. I spoke to a co-author of the study, Dr. Martha Galati. Ultimately, what we care about is who's more likely to be alive. It's the people that are more physically active. And again, we as women, we don't have to do as much as men for once. For once. Okay, but what about other healthy habits that women tend to have more often than men do? I'm just thinking, like, are there other explanations for the results of this study? Or what if people just lied about how much exercise they were getting? Mm. Right. So Martha did point out that there wasn't information about, like, other healthy habits like gardening or eating well. But they did still find that this protective effect of exercise um, happened across socioeconomic status, race, ethnicity. Mm. And as for the lying, it is a known problem with questionnaires more widely. But funny enough, Martha says, people don't really lie about how much exercise they do, which I think is kind of weird. <laughs> Many of my patients, they will straight up tell me, I'm not going to lie to you, doctor. I don't do anything. She also okay. said people tend to be honest about their exercise in surveys, too. And in the end, Martha hopes that this new research might remind women that any exercise will help them live longer. Okay, well, speaking of exercise, exactly. I love this last story we're about to get into. It's about Tai Chi and how Tai Chi could be better at reducing blood pressure than aerobic exercise. Who would have thought? Yeah, I mean, not me. But um, <laughs> Tai Chi, for people who aren't familiar, is a traditional slow-moving form of Chinese martial so art. So slow. <laughs> it is very, very slow. And it involves gentle movements, controlled breathing, mindfulness. And even better, it doesn't require a lot of space or equipment. And if you're lucky and you live in a big city, you might find some nice folks doing it in the park and they might let you join in. I know. Like I used to see these huge groups of old Chinese people in the park growing up and I used to think, how is that even a workout? You are moving so glacially. I mean, we all thought that. <laughs> but guys, the joke's fully on us. Scientists already know from earlier studies that practicing Tai Chi can help improve balance and walking speed in older adults, reduce anxiety and depression, protect against cognitive decline, and even boost memory. It solves all our problems. So why aren't Truly. we all doing Tai Chi, guys? I think I'm going to start soon. But OK, so that's not all. Now we have this new study published in the journal JAMA Network Open that suggests Tai Chi is better at lowering blood pressure than more vigorous aerobic exercise like jogging, cycling, or brisk walking, some of the exercises we mentioned earlier. That is so impressive. It makes me want to stop running now. <laughs> Same. Our colleague Maria Godoy recently wrote about this new research. And one thing we should make clear is this study only looked at people with prehypertension, which is just blood pressure that's higher than normal, but doesn't quite reach the level of high blood pressure. 
So it's considered a warning sign that heart disease might be ahead. But wait, what do scientists think is so special about Tai Chi that allows it to help lower blood pressure? Well, Maria talked to a researcher not involved in the study who pointed to Tai Chi's ability to elicit more of a response from the parasympathetic nervous system. Now, this is the network of nerves that relaxes your body after periods of stress or danger. So Tai Chi is this mind-body exercise that has the ability to help a person relax and calm down, which I know we all need. Oh, yes. And that works towards lowering blood pressure as long as you're doing it consistently. Consistently. Mm -hmm. As with everything in life, yeah. you got to stick to it. Well, that is Regina Barber and Rachel Carlson from NPR's science podcast, Shortwave, where you can learn about new discoveries, everyday mysteries, and the science behind the headlines. Thanks to both of you. Thanks, Elsa. Thank you, Elsa. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Since he was elected president in 2016, Donald Trump and his supporters have sought to remake the GOP in his image, and it's happening at every level. If you want to learn more about the subsequent Republican infighting, look to Horry County, South Carolina. Republicans there vote in a presidential primary on Saturday, and Pierre Stephen Fowler has the story. If you visit HorryCountyRepublicanParty.com, it's a pretty standard website for a local GOP. A defiant elephant logo sits atop the latest info for a Trump Tuesday event with links to party leadership and other typical fare. But that's not the real party's site, but rather a splinter group of conservatives that have clashed with the party leadership and insist that they're the ones in charge. And basically any real conservatives that want to have their voice heard, they are going through extraordinary lengths to silence all of us. That's Roger Slagle. He's the one-time chair of the official Ori GOP and now leader of the copycat group who spoke last year about the split to another local group. But the fight keeps going. I will continue the fight. You know, we consider ourselves the duly elected uh, Republican Party of Ori County. So how does one conservative county find itself with two Republican parties? Long story short, Slagle was elected as head of the GOP in 2021 and resigned in 2022, then unsuccessfully tried to unresign. While the state party recognized new leadership, Slagle formed a new Horry County GOP with essentially the same name and same goals, but not the authority. That led to a protracted legal battle and a headache for Republicans trying to focus on building the party, like Reese Boyd, the actual chairman. He's an attorney in Myrtle Beach and was there for a Trump rally in neighboring Conway this month, where Trump himself recognized that role. Horry County GOP Chairman Reese Boyd done a great job. Thank you, Reese. Boyd doesn't understand the infighting and squabbling, considering everyone involved is very conservative, supports Trump, and is working towards the same goal of electing more Republicans. They want to call everybody that they disagree with a rhino. How they define that, I don't know. There's really, it makes no sense. But this family feud is not confined to the independent republic on the coast. Similar rifts in South Carolina's Lexington and Greenville counties have played out in the last few years. Enthusiastic grassroots Trump supporters have stepped into party positions at the precinct, county, district, and state levels, sometimes stepping on toes in the process. I tell people there's a lot of cult of personality involved in some of these splinter groups. It's very hard to pin down exactly what the differences are, are really about. 
According to James Walner, a political science professor at Clemson University, those differences come from increased engagement in the age of Trump. You're seeing more people getting involved in politics within the Republican Party, and they're trying to achieve their goals in this system, and they're being met with a very fierce resistance in many respects. He says the angst among Palmetto State Republicans boils down to these new participants questioning how the party is or isn't doing things. But too often what we see, I think, is that the status quo will often try to belittle and to delegitimize people instead of engaging them on the issues. The issues raised in Horry County are more inside baseball and have little impact on the party's near dominance in South Carolina. But similar issues raised by infighting in swing states like Arizona, Georgia, and Michigan could play a role in who wins this November. Stephen Fowler, NPR News, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for being with us this afternoon here at 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. Coming up just after the top of the hour, the first soft landing of a spacecraft on the moon is expected this evening. It would be the first such landing since the Apollo era. We'll have the latest on the countdown. WBUR supporters include Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. We might get a wintry mix before midnight tonight, then there's a chance of rain overnight. Lows will be right around the freezing mark. Tomorrow looks rainy with temperatures in the mid-40s. Then the weekend looks nice, mostly sunny in the mid-30s on Saturday, sunny and around 40 degrees Sunday. Monday could get up around 50 with partly sunny skies. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science, with changing landscapes and immersive journey, a new exhibit transporting you to iconic spots around the globe, mos.org, and Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Become a certified psychoanalyst and earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand how you can help your patients develop emotionally fulfilling lives. All prior master's degrees qualify for psychoanalytic training. Now accepting applications for fall. bgsp.edu. Two years into Russia's war on Ukraine, life goes on for many kids. But it's still wartime. It's dangerous. Attention, air raid alert. So the city of Kharkiv is building an entire school system underground. We meet residents determined to stay even as Russian troops advance. That's on the next morning edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. Foreign agents plotting political assassinations in the U.S. I mean, that sounds like the stuff of Hollywood movies, right? But in the past 18 months, the Justice Department says it has foiled four assassination plots on American soil. So the question is, is this a dangerous new normal? Or have foreign operatives always been quietly executing perceived enemies in this country? NPR's Ryan Lucas reports. A handful of state-sponsored assassinations in the past 20 years have grabbed international headlines. Alexander Litvinenko's poisoning by Russian operatives in London in 2006 and the gruesome murder of Jamal Khashoggi in Istanbul by Saudi agents are but two examples. Neither of those, of course, took place in the United States. But in the past few years, there have been plots aplenty on U.S. soil. 
starting with one by Iran to assassinate former U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton. This is an especially appalling example of the government of Iran perpetrating egregious acts of transnational violence in violation of U.S. laws and our national sovereignty. That's Matt Olson, the head of the Justice Department's National Security Division, announcing charges in the case in 2022. According to the Justice Department, Iran also had a hand in two other recent assassination plots, one targeting an Iranian-American writer and activist in New York, and the other targeting a couple in Maryland. But it's not just Iran. Late last year, the Justice Department said it had foiled a plot directed by an Indian government official to kill a U.S. citizen in New York City. What made that alleged plot so shocking is that India is an American ally and fellow democracy. It seems especially brazen for a U.S. ally to take such a step. But back during the Cold War, some American allies were doing just that. One of them was Chile's General Augusto Pinochet. In 1976, Chilean intelligence operatives killed a former ambassador, Orlando Letelier, and his American colleague, Ronnie Moffat, in a car bombing in Washington, D.C. When a bomb goes off in a car in the rush hour on Sheridan Circle on Mass Ave in the middle of Embassy Row and shatters the windows for a block around, that's a big deal in Washington. Michael Glennon is a law professor at Tufts University. But at the time of the bombing, he was a young attorney working for the Senate. Letelier's assassination helped spark a Senate investigation that Glennon oversaw into the activities of foreign intelligence agencies in the United States. Glennon says the investigation received reports from foreigners in the U.S. that they were under surveillance or being harassed or even targeted for assassination by foreign intelligence services. But actual assassinations of U.S. residents, he says, were extremely rare. The Letelier assassination was an anomaly. These foreign intelligence agencies, including the Soviets, I might add, stopped at the line of assassination. That was verboten. But some countries that did cross that line were allies. Five years after the Letelier bombing, two union organizers in Seattle were murdered inside their local union office. A U.S. court later found Philippines dictator Ferdinand Marcos and his wife, Imelda, liable for the murders. The killings were said to be in retaliation for the men's anti-Marcos organizing. And in 1984, a Chinese-American named Henry Liu was gunned down in the garage of his home in Daly City, California. Members of a Taiwanese criminal gang, acting at the behest of Taiwan's military intelligence, were convicted of the murder. The friendly foreign intelligence agencies recognized that it was the hostiles that the United States was concerned about. That meant that U.S. allies were not under close scrutiny, and they knew it. But that was the good old days of the Cold War. And it raises the question, have state-sponsored assassinations become more common since then? It's very difficult to know. Rory Cormack is a professor at the University of Nottingham who studies secret statecraft. It certainly feels like we are seeing more because they are brazen and because um, because the Americans are more willing to expose publicly this activity. He says a couple of factors are likely contributing to the apparent increase in these sorts of plots. I think the landscape is, is changing and the, the, the norms against this are eroding. And, and that is seeing you know, more actors feeling like they can, they, they can get away with it. He also points to the spread of armed drones. The U.S. has used armed drones for more than a decade to target suspected terrorists around the world. It justifies its actions as self-defense in response to an imminent threat. But critics accuse the U.S. of hypocrisy. And Cormick says they point to the 2020 American drone strike that killed Iranian General Qasem Soleimani 
as a prime example. And they'll see that as you know another nail in the coffin of, of taboos against uh, assassinations and, and targeted killings. Countries aren't using drones to target perceived enemies in the U.S., of course, and none of the recent plots in the U.S. has succeeded. But that doesn't mean that foreign powers, adversaries or allies won't keep trying. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. The president of Mexico is batting back serious accusations that those close to him have ties to the country's drug cartels. NPR's Ader Peralta reports the accusations are contained in back-to-back reports by ProPublica, The New York Times, and others. This morning, President Andrés Manuel López Obrador responded live on television to a detailed email from a New York Times reporter. The Times was about to drop a story citing unnamed U.S. officials, saying the DEA had heard from several informants that people close to López Obrador had received vast sums of money from cartels. One informant, the Times reports, intimated that the cartels had videos of the president's sons picking up drug money. All of that is false, the president said, totally false. In its report, the Times says the U.S. never opened a formal investigation and they decided to abandon it altogether as to not probe one of the United States' most important allies. President López Obrador chuckled at the suggestion. In other words, they feared us, he said, because Mexico is to be respected. Last month, ProPublica, Insight Crime, and Deutsche Welle released reports that alleged the president's campaign aides had received around $2 million from cartels in 2006, with the promise that López Obrador would rule in their favor if he was elected. These stories come just as Mexico's presidential campaign gets underway. López Obrador's party is leading in the polls, so the accusations have been prime campaign fodder for his rivals. But on the streets of Mexico City, all we find are shrugs. At one point or another, we hear the same about every president, says José Luis Ortega, who is 64. Radica López, a 24-year-old architect, says this doesn't surprise her because she assumed the drug cartels had been active in Mexican politics for many years. It's the same for the president's party and for the opposition, she says, it's depressing being a Mexican voter. We simply don't have a representative who identifies with us, she says, or who has our principles. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Mexico City. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From Mathnasium, who believes that every kid can be a math kid. Mathnasium offers customized math instruction intended to challenge advanced kids and help struggling kids get better. Learn more at mathnasium.com. From Cunard, sailing the transatlantic crossing between New York and London on Queen Mary II, with a commitment to White Star service, fine dining, and entertainment. Cunard.com slash crossing. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, 
at macfound.org. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Take a break and play the WBUR crossword puzzle every day. Five down today, Native American Tent. Play the puzzle for free at wbur.org slash fun. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at howdoyouseetheworld.com. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The first lunar landing of a commercial spacecraft could happen next hour. If the intuitive machine's landing succeeds, it'll be the first soft landing on the moon since the Apollo era a half century ago. It's Thursday, February 22nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in for Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, more than a million displaced Palestinians are crammed into southern Gaza seeking safety. Many of them aren't able to cross the border into Egypt, and the situation is growing increasingly desperate. Some people have told me, you know, I want to go back to my home, and even if it's destroyed, it'll be safer. You know, at least I will die on my home. The latest from the Egyptian border coming up. And we'll look into what was behind today's widespread cell phone outage and how it impacted people nationwide. It's 5.01. The news is first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden says the recent Alabama high court ruling that embryos are considered people under state law is outrageous and unacceptable. Ruling is already having major impacts on fertility treatment in the state. More from NPR's Deepa Shivaram. Biden said the court ruling was a direct result of the U.S. Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade and that he'd keep fighting to restore Roe. The president's statement comes as Democrats are pushing to keep abortion rights as a top-of-mind issue for voters headed into the November election and make sure voters know where Republicans stand on the issue. In recent fundraisers, Biden has spoken about reports of former President Trump's support for a 16-week abortion ban, and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley said she agrees that embryos are children. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, San Francisco. The mother of the late Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny says she's finally seen her son's body, but she's still fighting to get his remains released for burial. NPR's Charles Maines reports. According to a video released by Navalny's mother, Ludmila Navalnaya, investigators brought her to a morgue where her son's body has been held for post-mortem examinations. Only Navalnaya said investigators insisted they would only release her son's body for a secret burial and threatened his remains could disappear if she didn't agree to those terms. Navalny died under mysterious circumstances last Friday in an Arctic prison where he was serving a lengthy sentence, widely seen as retribution for his criticism of Russian President Vladimir Putin. The Navalny family claims delays in the release of the opposition leader's body are an attempt to cover up his murder and prevent the public from mourning his death. Charles Maines, NPR News. Moscow. The Biden administration is reported to be considering executive action that could prevent people coming into the U.S. illegally from claiming asylum. That's according to reports by various media outlets, including the New York Times, which quotes people with knowledge of the proposal. The measure would essentially shut down the southern border to new entrants if more than an average of 5,000 migrants a day tried to cross unlawfully over a one-week period. It acted would mirror a 2018 effort by the Trump administration to block migration. 
The Justice Department has appointed its first chief artificial intelligence officer. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports. Jonathan Mayer will serve as the Justice Department's first chief AI officer, as well as the chief science and technology advisor. The department says Mayer will advise the attorney general and other DOJ leaders on complex emerging technological issues, including cybersecurity and AI. Mayer is currently an assistant professor at Princeton University in the Department of Computer Science and School of Public and International Affairs. The Justice Department says AI could be a critical tool for law enforcement. It has already used AI to help classify and trace opioids, as well as sift through the huge amount of evidence related to the Capitol riot. But officials also warn that in the wrong hands, AI poses immense risks and challenges for the U.S. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Stocks soared today. The Dow is up 456 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Massachusetts' first offshore wind project hit a new milestone this week. After a lot of testing and a little bit of delay, the first five turbines at Vineyard Wind are up and running. WBUR's Miriam Wasser has more. The five turbines are generating about 68 megawatts of clean energy. That's enough power for about 30,000 Massachusetts homes. Ken Kimmel is the chief development officer at Avangrid, one of the two companies behind the project. He says when all the turbines are up and running, they'll be able to power 400,000 homes. Every time we put another turbine online, every time it's spinning and generating clean energy, we're taking tangible steps to address climate change while creating new clean energy jobs. Vineyard Wind first started producing power last month and is expected to be fully commissioned later this year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Congressman Seth Moulton is on his way back from a two-day visit to Taiwan. His office says during his visit, he tried to reassure the government there that the U.S. remains a strong ally, despite Republican opposition in Washington. Moulton was part of a bipartisan delegation that met with Taiwan's president and president-elect. The North Shore Democrat says he's imploring leaders in the House to pass financial assistance for, the t- for Taiwan, Ukraine, and Israel that was approved by the Senate. The city of Medford is investing $300,000 to reduce reliance on fossil fuels. The money will go to projects including solar panel installation, electric vehicle infrastructure, and electrifying home heating and water systems. City officials say they'll focus investments on underserved communities. The money is part of a clean energy grant program administered through the state. The week-long Foundry Festival in Cambridge has its biggest event tonight. The festival focuses on family-friendly arts and STEM programming. But Foundry Executive Director Diana Navarrete-Ricoxis is most excited for tonight's night market. They say this one's more geared toward adults. It's going to be a mix of a vendor fair, so all local artisans are going to be selling their things. And we'll have remnant brewing here. And then we'll also have DJs and performances. And it'll be a really fun night for folks to come and check out what kind of boundary after dark can look like. And the rest of the festival runs through Saturday. There's a chance of rain tonight. It might start with a bit of snow and freezing rain mixed in. It'll get down to the low 30s. Then a wet Friday looks like rain most of the day. Highs will reach the mid-40s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Project Lead the Way, where they believe learning by doing helps every student in every grade be STEM successful. Learn more at pltw.org slash NPR. This is NPR. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. For the first time in over 50 years, an American spacecraft is attempting a moon landing. We will have all the details in a few minutes. But first, to the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas. In an effort to flee the worst of the fighting, more than a million Palestinians have left their homes and squeezed into the southern tip of Gaza. They still face Israeli bombardment there, and those million-plus people in southern Gaza can look right through its border fence. They can see the safety of Egypt's vast Sinai Peninsula on the other side. So why isn't Egypt opening its border to Palestinians besieged in Gaza? To find out, we're joined by NPR's Aya Batrawi in Dubai and NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv. Hey, you two. Hi, Mary Louise. Hi. I I want you both to paint us a picture of this border just so we can visualize it. Greg, you first. What is the scene today on the Gaza side of the border? Yeah, let me describe a satellite photo that shows the real contrast here. On one side, the Gaza side, there's all these displaced Palestinians in tents. They're packed together side by side in the sandy soil. They've completely overwhelmed the southern border town of Rafah. Now, Israel is carrying out airstrikes in the Rafah area. More than a half dozen last night and today, more civilian casualties are reported. And Israel is warning of a possible ground offensive in Rafah. They say this is the last Hamas stronghold in the territory. But now on the other side of this satellite photo, just across the border fence on the Egyptian side, you see the wide open desert spaces of the Sinai Peninsula. Yet Egypt keeps this border tightly closed, something it's almost always done over the years. Okay, Aya, you jump in because you've reported extensively from that side, from Egypt. What is happening on the Egyptian side. Well, currently, Egyptian security officials are telling NPR that there is a an enclosed sort of security zone being built up with these blast walls, these big cement walls. It's like a buffer zone right there that would be able to hold 150,000 Palestinians in the event that they break through that border with Egypt to flee an Israeli ground invasion and intense bombardment in Rafah. And now Egypt has warned that forced displacement is a red line. Now, I've also been to this border area since the beginning of the war. And I've seen tanks there, I've seen Egyptian troops, but I've also seen a lot of aid trucks lined up trying to get in. For most of this war, this border has been the only way for aid to get into Gaza. You know, time and again since Israel's founding in 1948, Palestinians have been forced to flee their homes, and Egyptians, they don't want to be a part of facilitating that happening again now in Gaza. Yeah, and I I just want to hear what is on people's minds. The people who are stuck in Rafa, on the Gaza side, no way out, at least for now. What are they saying? Well, I'm, I spoke with Karen Huster today. She's a medical coordinator for Doctors Without Borders. She just left Gaza a few days ago after spending five weeks there, including time in Rafa. I've never heard anybody say we want to go to Egypt. They just want to be in a place where they don't get bombarded and where they can sleep and where they can wake up the next day alive. Some people have even told me, you know, I want to go back to my home. And even if it's destroyed, I'll put my tent there and it'll be safer. You know, at least I will die on my home. 
And Huster, well, she survived intense Israeli bombardment from the sea and from the air. And she says some families are packing up their mattresses and whatever they can carry and heading to the coast, literally setting up tents on the beach within sight of Israeli naval ships in anticipation of a wider Israeli ground offensive in Rafah. Mm, that really drives home the urgency and the timing here. Greg, on that point, what is the possibility of a ground operation in Rafah, what's Israel saying? Yeah, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says military planning is going on for an operation, a ground operation in Rafah. He has pledged time and again that he won't leave any part of the Hamas military infrastructure intact. And Hamas is still believed to have several thousand fighters in the Rafah area. However, Netanyahu is facing this intense international pressure not to move on Rafah. Even his strongest backer, President Biden, says Israel's military shouldn't act unless there's a credible plan to evacuate these very vulnerable Palestinian civilians. And Netanyahu has told the military to come up with a plan, but there's no sign of it and there's no real clear options. The other parts of Gaza were devastated as Israel moved from north to south. Very limited aid is reaching these areas in particular. So there's really no way to cope with a large influx of Palestinians, even if they were to move to another part of Gaza. And in addition, several members of Israeli's government have even been calling to push the Palestinians out of Gaza. Now, Israel says it's not the official policy. It doesn't want to displace Palestinians from Gaza. But comments like this do stoke fears with both the Palestinians and the Egyptians. Yeah. And Aya, back to you. Is it fair to say that by keeping its borders sealed to Palestinians, that, that Egypt is effectively aiding in Israel's blockade of Gaza? Well, that's the dilemma Egypt faces. And it's it's done that essentially for more than 16 years by mostly keeping that border sealed. But it really doesn't have a lot of good options here. I mean, first of all, Egypt doesn't have full control over this border. Israel does. Israel decides what kind of aid can get in and who can get out. But also, you know, Egypt's government has to take into consideration public opinion, which is very sympathetic in Egypt to the Palestinian plight for liberation and statehood. And I was in Cairo after the start of this war, and I met Noha Bakr there. She's a professor of international relations at the American University in Cairo. And I asked her if she thinks Egypt should open its border with Gaza for people to leave. And what she told me is something that I think rings true among a lot of Egyptians. This is ethnic cleansing. This is forced migration. Do you want me to support it? Huh. So, Ayo, you said Egypt doesn't have a lot of options. What are its options here? Well, quietly among diplomats, you know, Egyptians have told their Western counterparts they are ready to suspend the more than 40-year-old peace treaty with Israel should that border be breached in the event of a ground invasion into Rafah by Israeli forces. And of course, that would upend a key pillar of U.S. foreign policy and security strategy in the Middle East. But on another track, Egypt is a key mediator between Israel and Hamas. You know, they are hosting Hamas leaders this week. They're hosting talks. They're trying to get a six-week truce in place that could see hostages released out of Gaza and maybe an end to the war and Palestinian prisoners released. So they're working hard on that track as well. That is NPR's Ea Batrawi in Dubai. Thank you. Thank you. And Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv. Thanks to you. Sure thing, Mary Louise. 
All right. For the first time ever, a private company may be about to land on the surface of the moon. The company Intuitive Machines has a robotic probe orbiting the moon right now, and it's going to begin its landing attempt in just a few minutes. If it works, this will be the first time an American spacecraft has touched down on the moon in over 50 years. NPR's Jeff Brumfield is watching all of this unfold as we speak. Hey, Jeff. Hi there, Elsa. Hi. Okay, this all sounds very exciting. Tell us a little more about this robotic probe thingy. Yeah, well, it's called Odysseus. It's about the size of a phone booth, give or take. It was built by that company you mentioned, Intuitive Machines, out of Houston. And on board are a variety of different things. NASA's installed a bunch of fancy instruments with names like the Laser Retro Reflector Array. Uh, but there's also some private payloads, including a fabric sample from a big-name sportswear company and <laughs> a bunch of little sculptures from an artist. Oh, that's random. Okay, you mentioned this is a private company, right? But you also just mentioned NASA. How is the government? government agency involved. Yeah, well, the bottom line is NASA's money is what's behind this landing. Ah. It's actually contracting with a bunch of different companies, all of which have built landers for it. I spoke to Brett Denevi, a planetary scientist at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. She says it's a really interesting approach. The part that I'm excited about, too, is just that this is scientifically opening up new possibilities. These little probes will carry scientific instruments to points all over the moon. And another company is actually supposed to deliver a rover to the moon later this year. So that should give her and others some cool data to work with driving around up there. Cool data. Okay, I have to ask, though, Jeff, the U.S., I mean, it successfully landed on the moon a bunch of times back in, like, the 1960s and 70s. So why is it taking so long to get back to the moon? OMG, Elsa, we've been busy, okay? <laughs> Man. I mean, Whatever. You know, there's the space station, the space shuttle. There's all those miss missions to Mars, okay, landing fine, on fine, Mars fine. and stuff. Um, you know, but it is true that we haven't landed on the moon, uh, had a soft landing in all that time. And that's because Apollo's, the Apollo program's secret sauce was the humans. They had humans steering it down to the lunar surface. And robots um, aren't quite up to the task always. Brett Denevi, you know, she said to me, getting to the moon is really tough. It just takes a, a ton of important steps. Every single thing has to go right. The moon is just far enough away. You can't fly by remote control. You have to have your probe make all the decisions by itself. It has to find its landing zone, and then it has to fly all the way down to the surface because there's no air up there. So China has succeeded. Uh, they've had three landings, but private companies so far have not been so lucky. Israel and Japan have both had private landers slam into the lunar surface. Ooh. And just last month, an American company, Astrobotic, had to give up on its lunar probe after its spacecraft sprung a fuel leak and fell back to Earth. Wait, but why is NASA paying these companies to try and do something it already knows it can do? It all comes down to the almighty dollar. Um, huh. This mission is just over $100 million, which may sound like a lot, but it is a bargain in terms of space exploration. <laughs> Even if it fails, NASA has others lined up in coming months, as I mentioned. It's thought some of them will succeed. And ultimately, what NASA really wants to do here is take people back to the moon. It has this program called Artemis that's big and ambitious and expensive. You know, with these tight modern budgets it's facing, the hope is these cheaper little landers can do some of the smaller jobs and ultimately save the space agency some money. That is NPR's Jeff Brumfield. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thanks, Elsa.
It's All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on All Things Considered. At the two-year mark of Russia's war against Ukraine, the Ukrainian people await word on whether the U.S. will provide more military aid. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's Winter Experience, celebrating the evolution of dance with two world premieres. On stage now through March 3rd. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash, cleaning cars since 1966 with 22 New England locations. Learn more about Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited at scrubadub.com. It was an up day on Wall Street today as the Dow picked up 1.2 percent. The S&P hit a new record after jumping just over 2 percent, and NASDAQ gained 3 percent. In local business news, the head of the Boston-based retailer Wayfair says he believes the company is getting closer to being profitable again. The company today announced it posted a $738 million loss for last year. That's a smaller loss than the prior year. Wayfair also says it saw its customer base grow more than 1% last year over the year before. Last month, Wayfair announced it was cutting more than 1,600 jobs, about 13% of its workforce. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, with over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries. Free admission every day, open Tuesday through Sunday. HarvardArtMuseums.org. Looks like there might be some rain overnight, maybe a little freezing rain and snow mixed in at the start of it. Then tomorrow looks all rainy. It'll get to the mid-40s. The sun should return Saturday with some puffy clouds and highs in the mid-30s. Sunday's looking a little warmer, around 40, with sunshine again. It's 39 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food from employee meal plans to on-site staffing with corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. From Your Part-Time Controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your Part-Time Controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person at yptc.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Texas is working to shut down a Catholic nonprofit that provides temporary shelter to migrants on the border. State Attorney General Ken Paxton accuses Annunciation House of, quote, alien harboring, human smuggling, and operating a stash house. The group strongly denies these accusations. As Angela Kocherga of member station KTEP reports, there's now growing concern among faith-based organizations that other nonprofits will be targeted next. In court filings, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton alleges Annunciation House is involved in smuggling because it provides transportation and temporary shelter for migrants. The group says Paxton's goal in filing the lawsuit, which stems from a dispute over access to records, is really to shut down the nonprofit. The Catholic organization's director, Ruben Garcia, declined to talk on tape, but issued a statement calling the shutdown unfounded, illegal, and immoral. Now other nonprofits helping migrants feared their next. Dylan Corbett is director of El Paso's Hope Border Institute. Faith-based organizations in particular have been picking up the pieces of a broken system for decades. This is a threat. It's an action designed for political effect. It's an action designed to have a chilling effect. Annunciation House has been aiding migrants for nearly 40 years. 
Border Patrol regularly coordinates with the shelter when releasing processed migrants who are awaiting immigration court proceedings. The same thing happened during the Trump administration. El Paso Bishop Mark Seitz says the church stands in solidarity with nonprofits doing this work. He called the Paxton lawsuit an affront to Christian values. And the bishop says Americans need to hear more stories of migrants to better understand their plight. Those kinds of stories help us to recognize the humanity of the people that we're dealing with that are not just pawns in this political game. Other faith groups are worried, too. Gerline Joseph is executive director of the Haitian Bridge Alliance in San Diego. We must protect, we must welcome with compassion and dignity because this is what we have been called to do. Joseph and others say they're compelled to rally in support of other faith-based organizations in Texas who say they're now at risk of being shut down. For NPR News, I'm Angela Cocherga in El Paso. In 2021, New York legalized recreational marijuana use for adults. And according to the state, one of the major goals of legalization was to right some past wrongs. You see, marijuana is the most widely used drug that is still illegal in the U.S. Users span racial and socioeconomic groups pretty evenly, but black and brown people are far more likely to be arrested for weed-related offenses. Well, the legalization rollout in New York has been, in the words of Governor Kathy Hochul, a disaster. Gia Tolentino looked into it for The New Yorker and joins us now. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being with us. So part of New York's goal was to respond to the disproportionate impact that the war on drugs has had on black and brown communities. You call this whole program, if you will, quote, legal weed as reparations. Can you just briefly explain how did New York State plan to do that? New York's very specific policy decision around marijuana in 2021 has to be put in the context of what other states have done, which is mostly fail dramatically at establishing a legal weed industry that reflected the demographics of the illegal one. You know, many of them barred people with marijuana convictions from getting licensed in the legal industry. Many of them didn't take any measures to expunge marijuana convictions. And so across the United States in the increasing number of states that have legal adult use marijuana, you mostly have an industry full of white venture capitalists, you know, making a lot of money off of, as you were saying, this drug that is commonly used as a cudgel against poor communities, black and brown communities. And so right. New York decided to try to go much further than any of those states ever had. The 2021 law, it's already expunged 100,000 plus marijuana convictions. It allocates 40% of all tax tax revenues from the sale of weed to community initiatives in places that were heavily and disproportionately policed over marijuana. And most crucially, it set out this goal of allocating half of all licenses across the industry to, you know, so-called social and economic equity applicants. And then the, the legal weed as reparations part, that real flagship program was something called CARD, which gave out the first several hundred dispensary licenses to people who had or whose family members had a marijuana conviction. Right. And were people with marijuana-related convictions able to get 
those first licenses to legally sell marijuana? What was the success rate there? As Kathy Hochul said, it has been rocky. But <laughs> but the context for this also is that legal weed is an incredibly expensive and difficult industry to enter because it remains federally illegal. It's a process you found can cost millions of dollars to set up a weed shop, a legal weed shop. Because there's all sorts of compliance and regulations that the unregulated illegal trade you don't have to contend with. And so people got licenses. Have they been able to open shops? Not so much, not so quickly. They're coming, but what has swept the city in the meantime, as anyone who lives here knows, are these illegal weed bodegas, you know, on every block. But the reason why it's taken so much time for the recipients of this card license to get their shops open is because New York planned to put together this kind of unprecedented package that would allow these people to leapfrog those barriers to entry, that would give them state-approved, renovated dispensary sites and to give them low-interest loans from a state fund and to really... Right. You're talking about a $200 million loan fund that was supposed to help businesses get that startup capital that they need. Right. Did you get the sense that people actually benefited from that fund? a few people who were able to get state money and state dispensary sites to open their stores like Mm -hmm. the program had originally promised. For the vast majority of other people, I think it has been difficult or impossible for one reason or another. There was a lot of trouble in putting together the fund because $150 of that money had to come from private investors who wanted a certain rate of return on their investment. And, you know, all of it basically pointed to what I saw as a fundamental contradiction which is, can social justice and capitalism work hand in hand? And, you know, jury's out. I tend to say no. (laughs) Jury's still out. Well, when we look at the overall numbers, like in terms of the ownership of these stores, according to the governor's office, 0.2% of dispensaries in the U.S. are Black-owned. Other estimates put that number just under 2%. But either way, Governor Hochul says in New York, more than 20% are majority Black-owned. I mean, just given those percentages, wherever they're landing right now, would you characterize the New York program as a failure? I think that statistic points to exactly why this program is not a failure. It has been exceedingly bumpy. The the OCM's desire. OCM, that's the Office of Cannabis Management in New York. Right. The OCM's desire to not recriminalize marijuana has resulted in illegal stores choking the city and posing an enormous challenge to the legal industry, that's for sure. But despite all of the failures and missteps and complications, New York has tried to go farther than any state ever has in terms of equity in legal marijuana, mm-hmm. and it has already. I think we will see that even in this kind of unique hothouse environment, New York's legal industry will look different than it does in other states. Gia Tolentino of The New Yorker. Her new article is out now. It's called Legal Weed Was Going to Be a Revolution. What Happened? Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is NPR News. You're listening to WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, today's widespread cell phone outage around the country, what was behind it, and how it affected people. Then tomorrow morning, Nikki Haley's time as governor of South Carolina was marked by conflict with fellow Republicans. We'll have more on how that dynamic has limited support from current elected officials ahead of Saturday's primary. Start your Friday here.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Coolidge Corner Theater, a cultural treasure in the heart of Brookline since 1933. Experience the best contemporary and classic films in two new state-of-the-art theaters and enjoy film education programs and special events in their new community engagement center opening soon. Learn more at Coolidge.org. Two years into Russia's war on Ukraine, life goes on for many kids. But it's still wartime. It's dangerous. Attention, air raid alert. So the city of Kharkiv is building an entire school system underground. We meet residents determined to stay even as Russian troops advance. That's on the next morning edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. A U.N. aid agency has suspended food deliveries to Palestinians in northern Gaza after its trucks were mobbed by desperate crowds. Israeli checkpoints and violence from the war have made the situation even worse for struggling families there. NPR's Aya Batrawi has more. Tasneem Ahel and her family have survived months of Israeli bombardment on Gaza City, fleeing from one place to the next some 24 times, she says, since October 7th when Hamas militants attacked Israel. There are hundreds of thousands of people like her in northern Gaza, unable to flee south. She says her father survived being shot at by an Israeli tank earlier this week as he stood among a crowd of Palestinians trying to get flour from an aid truck in Gaza City. We eat one meal in the day and... Uh, if there's food, uh, you you can eat one meal and a snack. Ahel says she's also seen malnourished babies at hospitals in Gaza City. The World Food Program says one out of every six children under the age of two are acutely malnourished now in northern Gaza. Aya Batrawi, NPR News. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street today. NPR's Scott Horsley tells us the rally was fueled by excitement over artificial intelligence. Computer chip maker NVIDIA was the star of the day. Its shares jumped more than 16% after the company reported blockbuster earnings for the most recent quarter and offered an upbeat forecast of what's ahead. NVIDIA's computer chips are in high demand for AI applications. The gains were widespread throughout the market, with the tech-heavy Nasdaq jumping nearly 3%, and both the Dow and the S&P 500 index hitting new record highs. Meanwhile, the National Association of Realtors reported an uptick in home sales last month. It's still a tough time for those trying to get a foot in the door of the housing market, though. Freddie Mac says the average interest rate on a 30-year mortgage rose this week to just under 7%. That's Scott Horsley. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. A jury today found a New Hampshire man guilty of murdering his five-year-old daughter and then getting rid of her body. During the two-week trial, prosecutors presented evidence that Adam Montgomery beat his daughter Harmony to death more than four years ago. Her body has never been found. Just over a year after a network of community behavioral health centers, or CBHCs, opened around Massachusetts, state health officials say the centers are increasing access to mental health care and helping people avoid hospitals. Bill Dwinnells leads crisis intervention services at Riverside Community Care that runs CBHCs in Milford and Norwood. He wants people to know they can call or come into the centers and be seen almost immediately for a mental health crisis instead of going to a hospital emergency department trying to get people to use the ED for medical emergencies and for behavioral health emergencies that, you know, may require containment. But any mental health emergency short of that, you know, can be handled right here. 
Emergency department boarding, people waiting in EDs for inpatient psychiatric beds, dropped significantly in Massachusetts last year. State health officials think that's partly due to the 26 CBHCs coming online. State senators plan to vote for a fifth time next week on updating the state's sex education guidelines. It would update lessons on sexually transmitted diseases, contraception, relationship violence, and other topics. Senators have approved education updates four times in the last decade, but they haven't been taken up by the House. A ceremony will take place on center court before tonight's UMass Lowell men's basketball game to honor and remember the first black professional player. Harry Bucky Lou played on an integrated team from Lowell in 1902. He went on to become the first black coach of Lowell Tech's college team. The school was a precursor of UMass Lowell. Chris Boucher is Lou's biographer. He speculates Lou may have played a role in the eventual integration of major league sports really wasn't another generation and so the full integration of major league sports but a few of the people who were behind that were from this area would have been high schoolers near the end of Lou's career and likely reading about his exploits in the papers every day. A plaque will be presented to Lou's granddaughter before tonight's game. It's 435, 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Well, we might get a wintry mix before midnight tonight. Then there's a chance of rain overnight. Lows will be right around the freezing mark. Tomorrow looks rainy with temperatures in the mid-40s. Then the weekend looks nice, mostly sunny in the mid-30s on Saturday, sunny and around 40 degrees Sunday. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fidelity Investments, a dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Back in 2022, a few weeks after Russia invaded Ukraine, I called a Ukrainian man named Artem Chapai. He's a writer and had just become a soldier, a private, fighting in the Ukrainian army. We caught him on a break, sitting under a tree. You could hear shelling behind him as we spoke. And I asked whether he was managing to get any writing done. Well, to be honest, today was a hard day. Like, I can't go into details. Like, you just are afraid, like, this at this animal level where your stomach hurts. Like, you're just afraid for your own life and you don't know if you will survive. I tried writing something like war diaries, but I'm not sure. I, I basically stopped it. Since that interview, two years ago, I have wondered about Artem Chapai, how he was getting on. So today, we called him again. Hello. Hi, Artem. It's Mary Louise in Washington. Hello, Mary Louise. Hello. How nice are talking you? to you again. And yeah. to you again. I can't believe it's been two years. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. How are you doing? At the moment, better than before, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. Um, Artem... 
I'm so glad to speak with you again. Where are you? Can you say? Uh, well, as usual, it's uh, unadvisable to say the exact location, but I can say that at the moment I'm back from the front lines. So at the moment I'm in a safe place. Okay. And you're you're in Ukraine? Sure. I've been in Ukraine all this time. Yeah. I, I was able to get out several times, but generally I've been serving these two years. Have you seen combat? I mean, tell me what you've been doing. I can now talk more or less freely about what I have been doing in a previous unit. Uh -huh. I was in the military police, including in Donetsk region. So basically, it's not fighting, it's patrolling. And it's very different. Like, as I'm trying to watch like Hollywood blockbusters now, I understand how different they are from the reality. <laughs> basically, what war was for me is... It's like routine and sometimes even boring and then unexpected tragedy. The worst thing that happened was when my best friend was killed by Russians in August. And I was, of course, pretty much depressed after that. And I can say that I have been working with a psychotherapist for a year now and I have been on antidepressants for half a year. Well, basically since my friend died. Yeah, there's nothing good about war. Nothing good about war. No, I'm sorry for the loss of your friend. Were you with him? We were uh, about half a kilometer apart at the moment. So I saw the first rocket and I ran away to the shelter. And then I heard the second rocket. And at the moment, I didn't know about it, but he was killed by that second rocket. And what I feel sorry about is that at the time, like, I didn't come up and hug him. Of course, I didn't know it would be his last mission. Yeah, I, I know it's irrational, but I feel pretty sorry that I, 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 did, I didn't show my love for the last time. Yeah. As you say, how could you know? Yeah, yeah, of course, I couldn't know, but still, it, it's in my mind all the time. Yeah. Have... Um... Have you managed to get any writing done at all since I spoke to you a couple of years ago? Well, I tried several times because there are periods of time when uh, you, you pretty much have a lot of leisure, which is forced upon you. But uh, fiction didn't work somehow. Uh, however, about a year ago, I took two or three weeks. I was then basically on checkpoints. And so between shifts, I was able to write and I wrote a short nonfiction book basically about this war or rather about the motivations of people to fight and not to flee. Hmm. And this book has been published in France now, and uh, I believe it's being translated into English by Seven Stories Press. What's it titled? In French, it's titled, uh, if I translate it into English, it's titled something like ordinary people don't carry machine guns because it's about civilians who were forced to become soldiers. So it's autobiographical in a, on a certain level. Uh, it, it's, I would say it's partly about me and my family and my motivation, but largely it's about my, well, we call ourselves brothers. There's a, a Ukrainian word like for not blood brothers, but more like bros. Mm. How closely, Artem, are you following news of the outside world? I keep reading reports of Ukrainian soldiers on the front lines, scanning your phones for news on whether the U.S. Congress here in Washington is going to send more money, more weapons to the war. 
Yeah, I have a feeling that Ukrainians follow this news from the United States more closely than Americans do, because it's very important for us. Like, I wasn't in Avdivka at the time when it happened, uh, like lately. But this is I the town, like, the city that Russia just took. Go on. Yeah, so I was very close to Avdivka uh, until basically November 2023. And already at the time, I was surprised that we are still holding this. And I feel that partly it may be because of the lack of or the delays in. Uh, sending ammunition. So at the moment we were near Evdiivka, we were really hoping that at least, well, this may sound egoistical, but we were hoping that at least it will be held until we are redeployed to the rear. Mm. Because it was scary already like half a year ago or three months ago. So I'm actually rather surprised that we were able to hold it for so long. And this is great what these guys were doing. And uh, yeah, I was like maybe 20 kilometers to the rear and we were scared. Do you still believe in your heart that Ukraine will win this war? You know, uh, as I'm trying to philosophize and think about history, I don't remember any other, any precedent when an empire lost its colony and then regained it back. Hmm. I don't know, maybe this is wishful thinking, but I think the historical tide is on our side, something like this. Last question. When you and I spoke a couple of years ago at the beginning of the war, we talked about how beautiful your country is. You'd written about Ukraine. You described it as unimaginably beautiful. Do you maintain hope your country will be beautiful again, that you'll be able to describe it that way in your writing and it will be true? For me personally, it has become even more beautiful after what happened. Because I remember pretty well that uh, when the war was just starting, a lot of people, including in Ukraine, thought that we would collapse in just a few uh, weeks or months. And I must say that I was one of those. I thought that I would be like forced to become a guerrilla fighter. And the fact that hundreds of thousands, like I think half a million people actually went in the first days and volunteered in the army. It makes it even more beautiful for me now. So I realized that not everybody, but uh, there are a lot of real people among my people. <laughs> We've been speaking with Ukrainian writer and soldier, Artem Chapai. Thank you, Artem. Be well. Thank you for inviting me again. This is an honor for me. And thank to most of the American people for all the support that you have given to us. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Well, Howard University's ice skating team is set to make history this weekend. The first figure skating team at a historically black university is about to take part in its first intercollegiate competition. NPR's Adam Bierne laced up his skates and took to the ice to meet the team's founders. In the middle of a small outdoor rink in Washington, D.C., Maya James and Cheyenne Walker are showing off their scratch spins. Arms above their head, they turn like a top, slowly at first, before getting faster and faster. Both have been skating since the age of seven. But for James, growing up in Chicago, it wasn't always easy. Because it wasn't many people that looked like me doing it, so when I would go to a new rink 
or even sometimes in my home ring, I'll be the only black person on the ice, and it kind of felt like this eyes were on me. Cheyenne Walker had a much better experience getting into the sport in New York. I was fortunate enough to be in figure skating in Harlem, which was unique of its kind because it was an organization for women of color. So I grew up seeing women of color and people of color skate and being present in the sport. But when it came time to go to college, Walker faced a tough choice. It was very difficult to figure out like whether I wanted to go to school and continue to skate or if I wanted to go to a school that I knew was meant for me. I ultimately ended up choosing Howard because Howard just felt like home when I visited it. It might have felt like home, but she was missing skating. So it was James. She DM'd me and was like, I'm thinking about starting a club. So when Maya reached out to me, it just felt like fate. After a couple of months of paperwork, the Howard University ice skating team was born, with James as president and Walker as vice president. But that was the easy part. The biggest challenge has been finding ice time, says James. There's only one rink in D.C., and it's a little ways out from the Howard campus. And it's also closed for renovation right now. So for now, the team has to travel to neighboring Maryland to train. And to teach brand new members how to skate, they grab an hour of time on this small public rink on Monday nights. It's a far cry from the resources some of the colleges they'll be facing this weekend have, Walker says. We're probably going to be competing against people who skate on the ice maybe two or three times a week. We didn't really have that opportunity to get consistent ice time until this semester, and it's only one month. That's one of the reasons James says they're not putting too much pressure on themselves for Saturday's competition. Since we're like a baby organization, I'm not too concerned with winning as of right now, but I'm just happy to be there you know, and be included into the collegiate figure skating space. One of the team's coaches, Jordan McCreary-Graham, feels the same way. It's honestly going to be a challenge to just be on the same ice as collegiate skaters that are various levels will be an experience in itself. She admires what James and Walker have achieved. I went to an HBCU and I tried to recommend it and they're like, what? Black people don't skate. So having that actual thing in an HBCU is going to start a trend for other HBCUs to do it. That's not sunk in with Maya James yet. I don't think it's hit me yet how big it really is. I'm just happy that we actually were able to, you know, move this thing forward. This, like, small idea really turned into a big one. One that Cheyenne Walker hopes will leave a legacy. It's such an amazing thing to see how we're bringing people into the sport and really diversifying the sport. And at the end of the day, that's really what the goal is. Inspiring a new generation of black skaters all over America. Adam Bierne, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up just after the top of the hour, people who use fertility clinics in Alabama are in limbo after that state's Supreme Court ruled frozen embryos are unborn life and need legal protections. Well, there's a chance of rain tonight, and it might start with a bit of snow and freezing rain mixed in. It'll get down to the low 30s. Then we'll have a wet Friday, it looks like. Rain most of the day. Highs tomorrow will reach the mid-40s. Saturday, skies will clear out for the most part. We'll have sunshine and temperatures in the mid-30s. Then more sun for Sunday with highs around 40 degrees. It should be partly sunny Monday as temperatures get up to about 50. This is WBUR.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by JBS Home Inspections, providing not only home inspections for buyers and sellers, but also consultations for homeowners who need impartial advice about repairs and renovations. Whether replacing a roof or upgrading a heating system, JBS offers personalized advice in the greater Boston area. More at jbsinspections.com. Boston is known for many things. Sports, the American Revolution, esteemed universities. But what does it really mean to live here? For WBUR's Field Guide to Boston, we heard from residents about moments that made them love this city. I once saw a guy trip while running for an orange line train, and his Charlie card and IDs flew like frisbees in every direction. I slid my foot between the doors to hold it open. Another guy helped the man get up. A woman in hospital scrubs collected the contents of his wallet. I grew up hearing everything from R&B, soul, jazz, Boston, space funk, house, or rap blaring out of boomboxes, cars, windows, and storefronts. One of their chefs would chat with me in Vietnamese, addressing me as younger sister. I called him older brother. To hear more love letters to Boston and to share your own, check out WBUR.org slash field guide. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. Tens of thousands of AT&T customers across the country found themselves without cellular service this morning. This caused disruptions to 911 calls that people were trying to make on their cell phones today. The White House said that both the FBI and Homeland Security are helping the Federal Communications Commission to get to the bottom of what happened. Well, NPR's Scott Newman has been digging into this story and joins us now. Hey, Scott. Hello. Okay, so what was the scale of this outage today? Well, AT&T hasn't really said how many customers were affected, but a website that tracks these things, it's called downdetector.com, says the number peaked at around 74,000 reports of outages in the 9 o'clock hour Eastern time this morning. Hmm. There were reports of these service disruptions coming from places as far apart as San Francisco and Charlotte, North Carolina. According to the Down Detector website, Texas appears to have been pretty hard hit. Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, and Austin all reported a lot of outages. Man. What we do know is that the reports of outages suddenly spiked around 3.30 a.m. Eastern and continued to climb, but then peaked at around 9 and then started to decline through the afternoon as service was gradually restored. By late morning, AT&T sent a statement to media outlets saying about three quarters of the network was back up and running. As for inconveniences, naturally, AT&T customers trying to place a call or send a text message weren't very happy. Right. But some calls are more important than others. Obviously, 911 centers across the country had some issues. Yeah. Tell us more about that. Like, how did all of this impact emergency calls? So there were a number of reports from 911 services that things were not working very smoothly due to the outages. Emergency and fire departments in San Francisco and Charlotte, North Carolina, posted on X, formerly Twitter, mm-hmm. um, that they were having problems. One 911 center actually recommended using a landline if someone couldn't get through on a cell phone. <laughs> anymore. Exactly. I mean, it's worth noting that a survey conducted by the National Center for Health Statistics in 2022 reported that about 70% of adults and more than 80% of children in the U.S. live in cell phone only houses. Mm. So it's not quite clear where people are going to find those landlines. Yeah. But it's also important to know that unless all service is down, anyone with a cell phone can make an emergency call even if your provider is unavailable. Hmm. But what doesn't come through for the dispatcher is the location information 
in a sort of sophisticated caller ID that 911 uses. Uh -huh. So even though dispatchers are taught to get all that vital information, not having it readily at hand might slow down some response times. Right, which could really make a crucial difference in some cases. So how does AT&T explain what happened today? So AT&T hasn't said what happened, but by late this afternoon, they said that the service was fully restored to all of its customers. That is NPR's Scott Newman. Thank you so much, Scott. Thank you. Support for All Tech Considered comes from Fisher Investments. Fisher is committed to helping clients stay on track to reach their financial goals and enjoy a comfortable retirement. FisherInvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. The Oscars are coming up on March 10th, so we are listening back to our original reviews of some of the movies nominated this year for Best Picture. Here's critic Bob Mondello with his take on American fiction. Professor Thelonious Ellison, known to friends and family as Monk, has not been having a good day when his agent calls about his latest rejection by a publisher. They want a black book. They have a black book. I'm black, and it's my book. You know what I mean. You mean they want me to write about a cop killing some teenager or a single mom in Dorchester raising five kids? Dorchester's pretty white now. But yes. Monk's having this conversation while trying to hail a cab that ignores him and picks up a white guy just a few feet away, which does not help his mood. Then at a book festival, his symposium is sparsely attended because everyone's down the hall listening to best-selling author Sinatra Golden. How did you come to write this book? What really struck me was that too few books were about my people. Where are our stories? Where's our representation? Would you give us the pleasure of reading an excerpt? Yo, Sharonda, girl, you be pregnant again? It's just too much. Monk, played as increasingly exasperated by Jeffrey Wright, retreats to his family's beach house where he gets an idea and sends it to his agent. I be standing outside in the night. Deadbeat dads, rappers, crack. You said you wanted black stuff. That's black, right? I see what you're doing. Monk insists he send it out under the pseudonym Stag R. Lee, and to both their astonishments... We sold a book. No. We believe Mr. Lee has written a bestseller. It's a joke. The most lucrative joke you've ever told. Now, is Stag a pseudonym? Yeah. Mr. Lee can't use his real name. And now the lies start piling up. His agent claims Monk's in hiding because he has a criminal past. Can I ask what you were in for? Was it murder? You said that, not me. Now, if this were all that filmmaker Cord Jefferson were doing, it'd be kind of a riot. But he's got bigger fallacies to fry, or delusions to deglaze, or stereotypes to stir, or whatever. We think it is going to be the read of the summer. Yeah, I'm sure white people on the Hamptons will delight in it. Yeah, we will. They, they, we. It's going to be huge. American fiction is based on Percival Everett's 2001 novel, Erasure. The novel embeds Monk's entire ludicrously stereotyped book inside its story, makes it the craziness, so the author can make Monk's emotional life more nuanced, his relationship with his mom, say, who's slipping into dementia, as played by Leslie Uggams in the movie. Is that monkey? Frightening. <laughs> You look fat. In the film, instead of giving us the book itself as bait, the director baits us with the publishing craziness surrounding it so he can deal more subtly with the emotional stuff. And it's seriously engaging. Monk's ever-supportive sister, played by Tracy Ellis Ross. Books change people's lives. It's something I've written never changed your life. Absolutely. My dining room table was wobbly as hell oh my God. before your last book came out. It was, like, perfect. His recently come out as gay brother, played by Sterling K. Brown. Did you know Dad had affairs? Oh, for sure. Why am I the last to know? 
Because you love them too much. Enemies see each other better than friends. And Monk's wiser-than-he-is girlfriend, played by Erica Alexander. You can't write interesting characters and be critical of every bad decision they make, right? Maybe you should be the writer. I don't feel like much of one lately. Monk is hiding his increasingly public writing from all of them, but also hiding himself, all while the filmmaker shreds the entertainment and publishing industries for the voices they erase and the others they compromise. The dumber I behave, the richer I get. Balancing all the different tugs of this material and making it moving and jazzy and hilarious, you'd think would challenge any filmmaker, but first-timer Cord Jefferson seems to have no trouble making it live up to the grand title, American Fiction. I'm Bob Mandela. is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the station and from FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds working to maximize the impact of charitable giving and to create customized philanthropic solutions. Learn more at fjc.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. From the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older. NPRWineClub.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Some issues with the navigation systems for the Odysseus spacecraft slated to land on the moon this evening are forcing its creators to use experimental NASA technology for navigation. If the spacecraft safely makes it to its destination, it'll be the first soft landing on the moon since the Apollo era. It's Thursday, February 22nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Plus, does Nikki Haley have a sustainable path to remain in the Republican presidential primary race? We'll take a look at campaign money spent so far by the presidential hopefuls. Also ahead, one-stop mental health care in Massachusetts. You come in for one service and you get all the services that you need. Your psychiatry, your therapy, your substance use treatment, whatever you need, we can do it in one place. We'll check in to see how a network of new community behavioral health centers has been working since it rolled out just over a year ago. It's 6.01. The news is first. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Three fertility centers in Alabama are halting or restricting IVF treatments in the wake of the state Supreme Court decision that frozen embryos are children. Vice President Harris suggesting today the ruling was hypocritical. NPR's Asma Khalid reports. The vice president's comments came during a roundtable on reproductive rights in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Proponents are saying that an individual doesn't have a right to end an unwanted pregnancy. And on the other hand, the individual does not have the right to start a family. Harris says former President Donald Trump is directly to blame for these new limits on reproductive rights because he appointed conservative justices to the Supreme Court who overturned the landmark Roe versus Wade decision. While in the key swing state of Michigan, Harris said elections matter and warned that some Republicans are trying to enact a national abortion ban. Asma Khalid, NPR News, Grand Rapids. Maine's governor has rolled out a proposal tackling mental health and gun violence in a bill she's framed as a response to the Lewiston mass shootings last fall. Steve Missler from Maine Public has the story. Governor Janet Mills's proposal seeks to expand background checks and provide funding for mental health crisis centers while also tweaking an extreme risk protection law used to confiscate firearms. The Democrat has framed the proposal as balancing Maine's long tradition of gun ownership with a need to do more to keep firearms out of the hands of dangerous people. Gun control activists have described the bill as a good start, but they worry the change to the state's protection order law will add a step to a procedure already criticized as cumbersome. The response from gun rights groups has been largely muted, but that could change when the proposal is worked by the Maine legislature. For NPR News, I'm Steve Missler in Augusta, Maine. AT&T customers have wireless service again after tens of thousands lost connectivity overnight, causing disruptions to 911. The FBI is also looking into the outages. More from NPR's Scott Newman. Early Thursday morning, reports from AT&T customers began flooding in. At the peak, the website downdetector.com said 74,000 customers were without service. But by late afternoon, the company said it had fully restored its network. Some police and fire departments said that 911 operations were affected for a few hours. AT&T hasn't given a reason for the disruptions, but the FBI says in a statement that it is, quote, in contact with AT&T and that if it learns of any malicious activity, it will respond accordingly. White House National Security spokesperson John Kirby also said the FBI and Department of Homeland Security were looking into the disruptions. Scott Newman, NPR News. A small privately built lunar lander will attempt tonight to do something that has not been done since the Apollo program, carry out a U.S. touchdown on the moon. Small Odysseus robotic spacecrafts scheduled to land at 6.24 p.m. Eastern time. The Dow was up 456 points. This is NPR. Sales of previously owned homes took a bump up in January, a slight decline in mortgage rates, pushing some would-be home buyers off the fence. The National Association of Realtors says sales of previously owned homes rose 3.1 percent last month from December. It's an encouraging start to the year for the housing market, which has been at a slump for the past two years, mostly due to high mortgage interest rates and rising home prices. Long Island County, New York today enacted a ban on transgender women playing on women's sports teams at county facilities. Member Station reporter W.A. Sachu has more. The executive order from Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman bans girls and women's sports teams at all levels, youth, college, and professional, from using county-owned athletic facilities unless the teams agree to keep transgender women off the roster. 
Blakeman, a Republican in the suburban county east of New York City, says he made the decision after speaking with parents and female athletes who compete as the gender they were assigned at birth. Whether it's the WNBA, whether it's college, whether it's high school, whether it's just a community league, it is an unfair advantage for someone who is a biological male to compete against a biological female. LGBTQ advocates call the order dangerous and illegal. For NPR News, I'm Molly Ingram on Long Island. It took a while, 34 years to be exact, but Japan's Nikkei is back in record territory. The country's benchmark index closing back above its previous record set in the late 80s. Paula Abdul and Janet Jackson were on the Billboard Top 100. Batman and Indiana Jones topped the movie list. Just to put it all in perspective, the index was up 2.2%. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Boston City Councilors are expressing fear over the fate of two hospitals in the city owned by the financially troubled Steward Healthcare. WBUR Simone Rios reports hospital officials declined an invitation to appear before the council this morning. Stewart's hospitals include St. Elizabeth's in Brighton and Kearney Hospital in Dorchester. Counselors representing those neighborhoods said Stewart's financial problems are causing anxiety among patients and hospital workers. Boston Labor Advisor Lou Mandarini told counselors there's a major lack of reliable information from Stewart. Every couple of days there are new rumors of an acquisition or a new operator. Little to none of it is concrete. Stewart is under a state deadline to produce financial documents by the close of business tomorrow. Governor Maura Healey has said it's time to transition Stewart's Massachusetts hospitals to new operators. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Congresswoman Lori Trahan says the court ruling in Alabama declaring frozen embryos children was a gut punch for her. That ruling cast doubt on the future of in vitro fertilization in that state. Trahan and her husband used IVF to conceive their two daughters. She says a family about to turn to the procedure then having it ripped away is a pain she cannot imagine. I want to make sure that other women struggling with their own fertility challenges have the same chances that I did. So to wake up and realize that the prospect of having a family for so many women in Alabama has been ripped away and that that could actually become contagious across Republican-controlled states across our country is just shocking. Trahan says there's legislation before Congress to protect IVF federally, but she doesn't believe the Republican-controlled House will allow it to be brought up. There's a new cannabis business group in the state. The Massachusetts Cannabis Coalition launched this week to push for reforms in licensing requirements, consumption limits, and other regulations. WBUR's Zeninjor and Wameka reports. There have been more than $5.5 billion in sales since recreational marijuana businesses opened in Massachusetts. But some in the industry say that number doesn't tell the full story. Ryan Dominguez is executive director of the Massachusetts Cannabis Coalition. He says the costs and fees required by regulations place a financial burden on small businesses. There's a lot of cannabis businesses and members that I've spoken to that are struggling to even keep their doors open, regardless of whether they plan to scale up their businesses or not. Dominguez says the new coalition hopes to change regulations to make it easier for marijuana businesses to operate. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. Taking a look at the forecast, there might be some rain overnight, maybe a little freezing rain and snow mixed in at the start of it. Then tomorrow looks all rainy. It'll get to the mid-40s. Right now it's 38 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. 
Other contributors include the Langloth Foundation, supporting justice, equity, and opportunity for all people to foster and sustain safe and healthy communities. Learn more at langloth.org and the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. IVF, in vitro fertilization, gives people who cannot naturally conceive and carry a pregnancy to term the chance to have children. So couples with infertility, with genetic issues, with difficulties no one can explain, same-sex couples, single folks who want babies, with the help of doctors and scientists, they create embryos that they hope will become family. Enter a first-of-its-kind ruling last week from Alabama's Supreme Court that frozen embryos are children. That has suddenly put doctors who provide IVF in Alabama on shaky legal ground and put hopeful parents in limbo. Well, we are going to hear now from Alabama. I am joined by Dr. Beth Malizia. She's an infertility specialist at Alabama Fertility in Birmingham. Welcome. Thank you. And we are also joined by Brittany Stewart, who is a patient at Alabama Fertility and a patient of Dr. Malizia's. Welcome to you, too. Thanks for having me. Um, Dr. Malizia, I'm going to let you start and give us a little bit of an overview. Uh, We are watching as some clinics in Alabama have paused IVF treatment in the wake of the Supreme Court ruling as they try to figure it out. Are you still offering IVF treatment as of right now? We have some patients that are in active treatment and on medications that it's not safe for them to stop their treatment at this point. So we are continuing with those patients. We have put on hold a frozen embryo transfer. So we have put those on hold. We hope that is a short-term hold for this week and next to let us get more and more counsel, let us get our feet under us. Um, we are hoping to have protocols and consents in place that would allow us to move forward. Brittany, let me bring you in. Um, You have a daughter born in 2019. Congratulations. Um, And this was by IVF in Alabama. Yep. Dr. Malizia, I call her, you know, she's our our fertility godmother, if you will. So (laughs) she is directly responsible for my amazing daughter. Yeah. What's your daughter's name? Her name's Emerson. Okay. Yeah. So your situation, as I understand it, is from that round, you still have one embryo left, and it's there in Birmingham. Is that right? Correct. So because Dr. Malizia was conservative and careful and thoughtful, we retrieved nine eggs, seven of which were mature, five of which fertilized, and then three made it to a day five embryo. That first embryo that we transferred became my daughter. We had a second embryo that we transferred. It was a frozen transfer in 2022. At that point, I was living out of state, but what's best for the embryo is to leave it where it's at. We didn't want to move it around the country. So I flew back to Alabama and did a frozen transfer. And unfortunately, that embryo did not stick. It did not become a pregnancy. So we still have one embryo left in the freezer in Birmingham. And where are you now in the process? What will you do? (laughs) <laughs> that's a great question. <laughs> I think that's the, the million-dollar question, right? It's hard to, to know what 
the consequences are going to be if we were to try to move the embryo or if we were to try to transfer that embryo in Alabama right now and it didn't become a pregnancy again, what does that mean? What does that look like? Does that mean we've murdered a child? Like that's, that's just kind of almost, it's astonishing. <laughs> like I can't think of another yeah. word other than, you know, it, it, it's just surreal. Yeah. Brittany brings up a, a, a really important piece of this that I think is kind of at the heart of how disturbing this news was for those of us in this world. But patients go through an extreme amount of stress just to walk through our doors. And so I, I really feel for those patients. I've had to make several really, really difficult phone calls in the last several days to have patients where we are holding or modifying their plan for what's safe. And those are really hard phone calls to make. Um, I have many physicians here in my clinic, I know we're not sleeping all that well and um, trying to make these calls uh, with the concern that we have for patients. And I have received that call from Dr. Malizia, not, obviously not the same circumstance, but, you know, she mentions just kind of the stress and anxiety of it. And once your body, once you have those medications and you're ready to go, so much about infertility feels like hurry up and wait. And we feel incredibly lucky that it worked and that we have our daughter and that she is this I mean her embryo I must tell you was beautiful (laughs) (laughs) she was a beautiful little embryo and now she's she was a beautiful embryo you know but yeah I've got the first picture of her and she's probably a hundred cells right but she wasn't a person to me at that point so it's really hard to wrap your head around not only how this decision, how they arrived at this decision, but what happens now and what are the consequences for families that found themselves the same way we did going, well, wait a minute, this was supposed to be a lot easier. I mean, I hear from both of you, there's just so much confusion um, about what the situation is. I do want to note Alabama lawmakers are are apparently working to try to bring some clarity to it. My colleague spoke today with one Republican state senator, Tim Melson. He says he's going to introduce a bill that would protect IVF treatment um, by making clear that embryos are not viable unless they are implanted in a uterus. Would that clear things up, Dr. Malinsky? That really would. Um, so we we have been working sort of tirelessly over the last several days to get this message out. People have very, very strong opinions about the embryo specifically, but at the end of the day, we all want to see women be able to come, mothers, couples be able to have children, single women, any any anyone who desires to have a family. We want more families. We want more children within the state. This yeah. is where I have a hard time because it's it, this isn't just about Alabama, right? This is a nationwide conversation where we've got to understand science. And I think that if we could just get it, if we could kind of like take the temperature down a little bit and talk about this rationally, you know, where can this embryo grow and thrive, you know, and that's, that's what we want to happen. So to limit options for families that are trying to grow, it's just really kind of unthinkable, but here we are. Brittany Stewart is a patient at Alabama Fertility in Birmingham and Dr. Beth Malizia is her doctor there. Thanks to you both very much for taking the time to talk. Thank you. Thank you so much. In business, the million-dollar question is how to get people to buy stuff, right? But in wildlife conservation, the challenge is how do we get people not 
to buy stuff. Juliana Kim and Darian Woods from NPR's The Indicator report on one tech startup's efforts to disrupt the market for illegal rhino horns. The top markets for real rhino horn are in China and Vietnam. Some buyers use the horns as sculpting material to make art. Others grind up the horn and consume it, believing that it can cure cancers or hangovers. Yeah, that's not true. Right. Either way, it's illegal to sell rhino horns internationally. So all of this is happening in the black market. And it's kind of a hot commodity. Matthew Marcus is the CEO of a biotech firm, Pembient, that was hoping to disrupt those markets with rhino horn made in a lab. We wanted our horn not to be its own separate market. We wanted our horn to invade the illicit market and collapse it. Matthew's company emerged in 2015, around the same time as other lab-grown products were taking off. People who are optimistic about lab-grown horns bring up a specific economic concept. When a prospective buyer is confused about the quality of a product, it can actually discourage them from buying it at all. That's exactly what I'm talking about in terms of creating confusion in the market for rhino horns using the synthetic horns. That's Fred Chen, an economics professor at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. And Fred says that the confusion caused by synthetic rhino horns could bring the value of the real horns down. Or maybe if I do decide to buy something because I'm not certain it's the real thing, maybe I don't want to pay as much. And that sounds to me a lot like what happened with another commodity that scientists figured out how to grow in the lab. Diamonds. I mean, look at De Beers, one of the biggest diamond distributors. Last year, the company cut the prices of some of their stones by nearly half, at least in part because of the growing popularity for lab-grown diamonds. And that was Matthew's pitch as well. Initially, he made some headway. He had funding, some lab space, and even some prototypes. Then we started also to have a certain legal challenges too to to what we're doing and people saying maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Many conservationists were saying that lab-grown horns will only signal to people that it's okay to buy horns. And there's precedent for this when it comes to how the legal trade has affected poaching. In 2008, China and Japan were allowed to buy elephant ivory from Africa in this one-off sale. And a study by researchers at Princeton and Berkeley suggests that there was a 66% increase in illegal ivory poaching. Some studies on rhino horn trade reached this conclusion too. One researcher from the University of Iceland interviewed rhino horn buyers and found some who spent more than $40,000 for them. In 2018, Matthew's company was probed by Washington State, where his company was based. Although those inquiries didn't result in any charges or fines, Matthew said the ordeal drove away potential investors. But he hasn't given up on his idea. I don't think that these should never be done or nor that it will never be done. I think at some point in time, reason will prevail and these will come into fruition. It's been years now and we're not any closer to knowing how copycat horns would do in the market or how they would impact rhinos. Considering all the regulation and pushback around the idea, There's a chance we may never know. Darian Woods. Juliana Kim, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday. With AI at the core of its platform, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR platform for a changing world. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up next, as more people started using Massachusetts' new community behavioral health centers over the past year, state health officials noticed another important metric in the health care system drop. We'll explain coming up. On Wall Street today, the Dow gained 1.2 percent. The S&P hit a new record after jumping just over 2 percent, and NASDAQ ticked up 3 percent. In local business news, shares in Cambridge-based Moderna are up more than 13 percent today on news its fourth quarter revenue beat expectations. The company said today its COVID vaccine brought in $2.8 billion in the fourth quarter last year. That was higher than analysts predicted. Moderna said its COVID vaccine accounted for roughly 50 percent of the shots administered this past fall, up from 37 percent the year before. It's 37 degrees in Boston at 621. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World Experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. And Lesley University. Put your creativity to work with a fine arts degree from Lesley University. Invest in your passion at lesley.edu. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. It's been just over a year since a network of community behavioral health centers opened in Massachusetts. The 26 facilities are part of a state initiative to give people fast, easy access to mental health care in every region of the state. Those who run the centers say, despite some barriers, that is happening, including when people are in their most vulnerable moments. Good evening, Mobile Crisis Maddie speaking. How can I help you? It's around 7 o'clock on a Wednesday night, and this call center at a community behavioral health center in East Boston is gearing up to be open all night. Mental health clinicians from the center's mobile crisis team answer calls. Noxon Yuga is one of the clinicians on duty. He never knows what he'll hear from callers. We have had people who are having a panic attack. We have had people who are having their first uh, psychosis break, and they are frightened, you know hallucinating and seeing things that they never saw before. The call takers then dispatch other clinicians to meet with those people and evaluate them. That can happen at home or at school, even at a subway station or coffee shop, usually within an hour of their call. These crisis interventions are one of several levels of care Massachusetts Community Behavioral Health Centers, or CBHCs, are required to offer. They also have to provide urgent care for mental health needs that aren't quite a crisis and routine ongoing care. I walked in here and asked for services and I got in immediately. Rebecca Higgins has been a client at the East Boston Center for nine months. Before she came here, she says she struggled with addiction for 20 years. She also has depression. In May of last year, she decided her life was going to change. I saw somebody at the desk. I said I needed help with substance abuse. They guided me, they gave me a navigation person, which um, gave me an appointment for therapy. She entered an intensive outpatient program at the CBHC several days a week. That included group therapy and visits with a recovery coach. Kate Moore directs crisis programs for North Suffolk Community Services, which runs the East Boston Center. In a day and age where we like everything on Amazon or one click, right, now we have the one click here. Your psychiatry, your therapy, your substance use treatment, whatever you need, we can do it in one place. And the care is completely covered by most versions of the state's Medicaid program, MassHealth. 
North Suffolk has offered mental health care in East Boston for more than 60 years, but it had to bring all of its outpatient services under one roof and expand its hours in order to become a community behavioral health center. Samantha Green-Atchley is a clinical social worker who directs the East Boston Center. She compiled data that showed demand exploded after it became a CBHC, particularly in one age group. The increase in child intakes has been pretty insane. Wow, 450% from April to April. Yes. Green actually says that's partly because the pandemic led to more mental health challenges for kids, and there was pent-up demand. Other clinicians had such long wait lists, they referred lots of people to the centers once they opened. CBHCs had a hard time staffing up to meet the demand. They're doing better now overall. But Green actually says in East Boston, they can't hire enough staff because they've run out of space. They're concerned about that affecting the care they offer to people. We do very well in terms of getting people in, but in terms of meeting everybody's needs about how often they want to be seen for follow-up care, where they want to be seen for follow-up care, do they want to be on telehealth, do they want to be in person, all of that is challenging. As more people got help at centers like this one last year, another important metric dropped. There was a 32% decrease in people boarding in hospital emergency departments waiting for inpatient psychiatric beds, according to state health officials. One of the state's goals when it spearheaded the CBHCs was to reduce ER visits for mental health care. Riverside Community Care's CBHC in Milford is part of that effort. Sunlight streams in huge windows of the newly renovated building as the center's director, Julie Greiner-Ferris, brings us in. So let's just walk a little bit this way. There are clusters of lush plants. Local photographs and paintings by kids who use the center decorate the walls. So we really wanted to make this a space that doesn't feel blocked off or dreary. All day, people call and walk into the Milford Center looking for help. So I'm very glad that you were connected to us. I'm very sorry about the experience that you guys had. By day's end, about 170 people have been seen for various kinds of sessions, treatments, and interventions. Again, Julie Greiner-Ferris. My hope is that this place is somewhere that people know that they can come when they need some kind of support, feel responded to when they do, and feel respected. But there's one problem. Some people can't access all of the support available because their insurance doesn't cover all of it. Unlike MassHealth, many private insurers do not cover the full range of care at CBHCs. This can include assistance from peer support specialists, wellness assessments with nurses, and help with housing and food needs. Kim Fisher is a vice president at Riverside Community Care. She says the organization is hearing from privately insured people who are upset to find out they're not covered for everything. It feels very uncomfortable for providers. It's almost as if we're denying care to a segment of the population, and we feel really uneasy would be, I think, the least word I could use in that particular circumstance. It feels not right and not even ethical to us. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, the largest insurer in the state, tells us it's exploring additional coverage for CBHC services along the lines of what MassHealth provides. Rebecca Higgins is on MassHealth and says she doesn't know what she'd do without the support she's gotten at the center in East Boston. I mean, I can ask for anything here. Anything such as? Being able to talk to somebody, being able to call somebody with my depression, just to be able to open up. She just finished her intensive program this month and says she's now thinking about a different kind of future than the one she thought she would have. 
state health leaders have set up a helpline to connect people with mental health services, including the community behavioral health centers. You can call or text that number, 833-773-2445. Again, that's 833-773-2445. Thanks for starting your evening with 90.9 WBUR. Join Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering at City Space on Monday, March 4th for a conversation with Maria Hinojosa, award-winning journalist and host of Latino USA. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. In sports, the Celtics return from the NBA All-Star break tonight as they visit the Chicago Bulls. The Seas begin the second half of the season with a record of 43-12, the best in the NBA. They have a six-game lead on Cleveland in the Eastern Conference. Also tonight, the Bruins will visit the Calgary Flames. The Bees began their four-game Western road trip last night with a 6-5 overtime win in Edmonton. And there's a chance of rain overnight. We'll see lows around the freezing mark. It'll be a rainy Friday in the mid-40s. Marketplace is next. WBUR supporters include Bentley University's executive education programs. Elevate your career with short programs in AI, leadership, and sustainability. Upskill for today's marketplace.